Hello and welcome to episode 50 of We Have Such Films to Show You, the big 5-0 and our 2015 earlier than Halloween, but it's the last episode before Halloween, so it's our Halloween episode episode. Uh, I am Josh Millard. And I'm Yaakov. And I think this is, this is the uh, this may be the first actual Halloween episode we've ever done. I don't think we've done a Halloween episode before yeah, for yeah, all the yeah, horror It somehow has never occurred to us when Halloween is. was approaching that maybe we should notice that Halloween is approaching and say something. I think we said something after the fact like, oh, yeah, we should have done something Halloween-ish in like probably a couple different November episodes. But uh, yeah, Halloween. Halloween. All Hallows' Eve. Halloween. That's why we watched Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> damn it! Is that what you want? Uh, yeah, no. We we, we talked about uh, what to watch, and and the idea had been to watch something actually scary, uh, yeah. And, and and not to knock anybody who really you know got spooked by Halloween, you know, when they saw it when they were young or whatever. I didn't see it when I was young. I saw it after I'd seen a lot of other horror movies, and uh, so I think I I remember thinking more. Oh, hey, there's some nice steady cam work in this. Oh, hey, it's Donald Pleasance. I think is. Uh, more of the reaction and William Shatner's head. Yes, yes, that bad Shatner mask. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, so so we, we we settled on The Shining because hey, The Shining that's a that's a classic spooky movie. It's, it's yeah, and uh, I uh, so and I had said hey, you know what? I won't even have to like you know find a copy of this because I've got my uh, Kubrick Blu-ray <laughs> uh, collection. And so on Saturday, I, I, you know, I turned all the lights off and I got the collection out. I'm just like, you know, I, I located what I assumed to be the disc for The Shining because it was in The Shining sleeve. And I put it in and country music starts playing and it says <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, full metal jacket. And I'm like, hmm, I guess, you know, whatever, this must have uh, been uh, misfiled. And so I put it, you know, I, I, I was just like the, the Shining DVD or Blu-ray must be in the sleeve for Full Metal Jacket, and I pull it out. So I'm currently the proud owner of two copies of Full Metal Jacket on Blu-ray, and I had to rent it off Amazon. Oh, man. Well, that, that means we watched the same version, because I also rented it off Amazon. So, oh, nice. So, hey. Did you rent the HD version? I did. Yeah, so did I. Was, I, was it worth the extra dollar, you think? I could never quite tell. Yeah. Like, it always it always threatens to downgrade it in case bandwidth is slow. And, like, I, I don't know. I should, you know... I should go out and grab a Blu-ray if I want to be really sure, but uh, but grab I also yeah, <laughs> maybe we can work something out. Uh, yeah, I just don't. I don't buy movies. I don't like purchase movies at all ever. I I only ever purchase. I mean, at this point, like unless it's you know, um, I, I I get like some movies. Like I'm probably going to get the Blu-ray if it follows. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I purchase collections now, so I've got, like, you know, all of Tarantino's movies in one box set up to a certain point, all of Kubrick's movies, oh, apparently not, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, the big Lord of the Rings box set, like the Mel Brooks collection, like, I get those, because I usually get them, like, super cheap, so it's just like, hey, here's all of Stanley Kubrick's movies for, like, $4 each. Yeah. Just like, all right. Um. Which I can, I can see that, I, I guess the thing is... I own uh, a few DVD box sets, and at the time it seemed like, hey, you know what the heck, let's go for it. And uh, in retrospect, I'm like, why the fuck did I pay money to have physical copies of this in a lower res format on a media that's not going to disappear anytime soon? But still, it's like I've invested in a physical artifact for stuff that, in retrospect, I can just watch as much I want, you know, online on demand at this point. Oh, okay. So I've, yep. I've just sort of, yeah. 
Like not director's not, commentary. That's like the one <laughs> thing that physical media yeah. has. Well, not just like any kind of commentary because it's super hard. Like, there's very, very few movies I've ever been able to track down commentary tracks for because that's like that sort of thing is not exchanged on the same like you know web as like a Blu-ray rip of you know the Born Identity like the. Director's commentary to it. You got to go somewhere very different to track that down. If anybody's even bothered to rip it, yeah. Um, and you know, Netflix never has them, which is a shame. I feel like they really should try to get those. Yeah, I, it, it's a weird thing because, like, I I've, the attraction there, I totally get, but in practice, I rarely have watched those things, and so it's never really pushed me over to caring yeah. that much. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, The Shining, I, The Shining. Yeah. Uh, you did. I just, uh, there was one watching. other thing that I, yeah, yeah, I didn't watch it. There was one other thing. I, we went, there was, I want to talk about a different movie briefly. Um, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the Goosebumps movie, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I went to go see yesterday, it was, I came in there with, I, I didn't even see the trailer. I, I only knew the barest idea that it was like sort of like a meta fictional movie about like R.L. Stein turning out to have, you know, like gotten his ideas and like brought them to life and then he had to get them back in with like the help of two teens. Um, anyway, and it's Jack Black as R.L. Stein looking like Tom Arnold with like a weird accent. Um, but the reason this at all matters is that so that there's like toward the end of the film where they're just like, all right, well, we got to get these monsters back in the book. So we have to like type a new book. And he's just like, I need my typewriter. Um, because he's just like, it doesn't work if it's not on my like. And he mentioned the brand name, like, that, that can't, like, be a plug, can it? <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, a Selectric-sponsored like, part of this movie. You know, a he- heavy, heavy marketing budget for typewriters yeah. these days, you know, it's a, it's a boom yeah. industry, so. So anyway, so yeah, so it turns out that the typewriter is, like, in the trophy case at the high school. So they go in there, and he gets the typewriter, and he's just like, all right, you guys go distract the monsters. I need to go find somewhere quiet to, like, you know, write this story. And he opens the door, and it's the uh, school auditorium. And on the stage is a big set of a high school production of The Shining. And it's got, like, a big banner up there that says The Shining. And he just sort of, like, looks down his typewriter and looks up, and he's like, oh, great. And then... um, (laughs) They And they don't really do anything with it, except for, like, the one thing is that there's a scene where he's, like, in that room and he's typing. And he, he you know, he's got, like, he, it, they, they framed it kind of, like, in The Shining. But, like, out of focus in the background during one of the shots is just, like, an axe embedded in a door. And somebody had, like, some, you know, attention to detail there, considering this is, like, a movie for children, yeah. I think. <laughs> I mean, there was just us and children in the movie theater. And, like, literally children, like, 12 and under. Yeah. Um, which was fun because they, they – like th- certain kinds of movies I'd rather not be in a theater full of excited kids during Goosebumps. Eh, I think it added something. Yeah, it seems They didn't really ruin anything in the movie. Um, it's like, shut up, kids. I'm trying to watch this serious film about uh, youth, <laughs> young adult uh, horror fiction. Uh, yeah, uh, that's nice. That's I mean that's the Animaniacs uh, sort of thing too. I mean, he's, lots of cartoons yeah. that are ostensibly for kids also have that weird attention to detail and you know sort of call out reference stuff for for more aged viewers. For the I also olds. rewatched The Shining right after watching The Shining. Oh, I kind of I kind of meant to do that and I didn't. I've it's, seen it enough times. The uh, the old I am Simpsons so short. surprised how many of the beats of like the like I haven't seen the movie that many times because it's a fucking intense movie. Um, but I have seen The Shinning, like, you know, a dozen times, and I, I 
realized that like so many of the beats that I remember from the movie are actually from the Simpsons episode. <laughs> like the whole give me the bat part, I was just like, oh, he's going to flip out. It's like, oh, he doesn't really flip out the way Homer does. Or like when uh, Scatman Crothers get, gets axed, I remember it as being in the back, but no, it's in the chest. Yeah, I remember it being in the back too. And I think that is uh, that Simpsons uh, cross-pollination there. Um, which is funny because like the, the, the chest is way more brutal. Yeah, you know when you look at it, but uh, I think in the back is just easier to set up in a a single sort of shot for the purposes of a quick animation gag. Yeah, I mean, I think like in movies generally, it was for many, many, many years much easier and more realistic to do like somebody getting axed in the back. So like axed in the back is you know this this expectation that we have. Yep. Um, that it's you know specifically in the back. I yeah I I I, I gotta say with the the axe in the in the back moment that turns out to be the axe in the chest moment. I was thinking about this. Uh, I've been playing a lot of metal gear solid five lately. Uh, and, is it and fun? it is, it's, it's sort of like it's, it's metal gear gameplay fused with sort of like a weird open world free roaming thing that works really well. It's kind of like metal gear, uh, as an, as, and Skyrim had a baby. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I've, I've sunk. Oh geez. A lot of time into it. A whole lot of time. Um, I can never tell exactly how long I've actually spent on a game by looking at like my steam thing, because I tend to leave games sitting a lot. Like I'll, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll play like during the day if I'm, if, if I'm actually working, uh, and meta filters a little bit slow, I'll like go back and forth between actively, you know, doing some work and maybe waiting for anything to happen. And so I'll play some video game, but it stays on the whole time. And so steam thinks I've spent like 200 hours playing metal gear five. Uh, but it's probably more like a hundred and something, but like <laughs> over the, you know, a lot of, I really got sucked into it. Uh, but it's a game where, you know, you sneak around a ton. Like I'm always, uh, y- y- you have weapons and you can in theory kill people, but it's not the most efficient way to play the game. And people tend to notice other people being shot. And so you might use, you know, silence tranquilizer stuff and that can work too. But then there's guys who are wearing full SWAT gear and thick helmets and you can't shoot them anywhere except for maybe in the ankle and then wait five fucking minutes for the trank to work. Uh, so you do a lot of sneaking around behind them and like getting right up behind them after slipping behind a, a thing as they walk past and grabbing them. And so I've been really in this mindset of thinking tactically about using space and movement to get close to someone, uh, you know, to take out a Soviet trooper. Uh, but in this case, Dick Halloran's essentially – you know, a target for a sneaking mission. Yep. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm in no way sympathizing with Jack Nicholson's character at this point of the film. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, oh, he's, yeah, no, there's some pillars there he can get behind. Yeah. No, he's totally going to be able to pull this off. He's totally going to be able to murder that guy out of nowhere. And, and I, I was actually a little disappointed that, that Jack Torrance shouts as he, yeah. attacks. I was like, why give it away at that last moment there, man? You just, you had him just, yeah, so that was a really weird sort of like cross-media dissonance for me watching that scene that I had nonetheless been like – that's one of those <laughs> scenes like I end up waiting for like every time I watch the film because like it's such a it's such a moment. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I don't think we really need to tell people that they should see The Shining because this is one of those movies that's not like some sleeper hit. Obviously, if you yeah. are wholly unfamiliar with The Shining, you should go see The Shining. This is if- possibly like the most like accepted like as – like film as an art form movie that we have done on this. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, this is, I mean, and it's a really interesting film because this is, this is Stanley Kubrick doing horror. And that was a notable thing as sort of like, you know, he doesn't really make horror films. Uh, and, 
as a horror film, it's kind of odd too because it's Stanley Kubrick making a film, not you know someone yeah. just slotting into the horror genre. So there, there's some weird stuff about it if you look at it as traditional horror. There's some interesting stuff about it when you look at it as Stanley Kubrick making a film that happens to play with some horror tropes. And also as a Stephen King novel turned into a movie, but not really. Yeah, yeah. Stephen King famously, famously unhappy with uh, Kubrick's treatment of the book. And it's he interesting. He prefers the television miniseries from the 90s. Yes, that he was directly involved in and it was <laughs> terrible. Uh, I mean, n- nothing against Stephen Weber per se. He was, you know, I'm sure very good on Wings, which I didn't really watch much of any of because I was a little young and didn't care. But Tony Shalhoub was on it and he was great. But, uh, uh, and that other guy with the three names, uh, Thomas Hayden Church. Basically, <laughs> nothing against Stephen Weber, but the only people I liked from that show I didn't watch he was on were people other than him. <laughs> I, I'm doing a really good job of not being a dick here. But uh, but but anyway, I, I didn't buy him as a crazy person. Like he's like the opposite of of uh, Jack Nicholson. Like one of the one of the common criticisms, uh, and certainly I think one of uh, King's criticisms of of the Kubrick film is. That Jack Nicholson just never seems sane, like you know. No, no, not yeah, yet. And, and I think that's it's it's a fair thing. I mean, it, I, I think Jack Nicholson can play sane just fine. Like generally, that's what he's played. But he always has that weird sort of edge, and he's always got that weird sort of like you know eyebrows, you know, fixed bayonet from the get go. Like you know, at best, he can be sort of like coolly snarky in a vaguely unsettling way. Um, yeah, the entire like the and and I mean like this is like the like the wonderful thing about watching a Kubrick movie and like knowing that Kubrick was just like if you if you don't know about Kubrick he he was like a a perfectionist as far as like getting everything just right and doing as many takes as required and like traumatizing his actors to get the performances out of them he needed like he did with uh, Shelley Duvall in this one um, and. So yeah, like nothing in this movie is is unintentional. At least I I I feel that way. And you know, like the the weird like unsettlingness of like that completely casual conversation about you know Jack Nicholson getting uh, hired by the uh, the people that run the Overlook, and just like the sh- the weirdness of just like him there and the way that he was speaking and and relating himself. Uh, it was just very like you know this this yeah this dude's gonna kill everybody, or at least try to. Yeah. Um, and, and and Steven Weber in the the TV miniseries, I I sort of felt the exact opposite way. It's like Steven Weber, he's a really nice, affable guy. And if your whole concept is to take that and then have him slowly corrupted by this thing and boil over and turn into a monster, I totally understand that. But I just don't really. He, Steven Weber just seemed sort of goofy when he was being like you know crazy, and you know so it went to the other side of it. Plus, it was the, I don't know the whole thing was just not very good. Is my memory that I have of, of that miniseries. Did you ever read the book? I did not. See, I did read the book at some point, but I'd read the book long after I'd seen the movie a couple times and been a big Kubrick fan. And and so then I saw – I read the book because I was, I was also a big Stephen King fan growing up. I read a lot of Stephen King books. Um, I just didn't like the book very much and I didn't think it was that good. And maybe it's just because I sort of – had seen the Kubrick film, had read commentary on the Kubrick film, had read Stephen King's thoughts on the film and other people's thoughts on both. Uh, but like the book just felt like super fucking telegraphed in a like, oh, wait, 
So he has uh, rage problems and the boiler's going to explode at some point, right? And the book just is like, oh, I, I'm forgetting something. Maybe it's the fucking boiler that you've been forecasting for the entire fucking <laughs> novel. So watching the film again, I, I what I remember about uh, the Kubrick film in part from reading about the Stephen King stuff and from reading the book is I remember the boiler really not being a thing at all in the film. And it's not. Like it never comes up. But I was really pleased to note that there was that brief scene where Wendy was actually minding the boiler. <laughs> like it's it's even better than just writing it out completely, saying, "Oh yeah, oh and that thing about the boiler." Like I I, I have to imagine that scene just like was a fucking knife in Stephen King's heart because like at that point he's like, oh, "Okay, the boiler, the brig." Oh, but but you didn't come back to the ah, you son of a bitch. You know, seems like worse than just never featuring it at all. Uh, I mean, it, but instead he gave the, like, from what I understand of the novel, he gave the resolution to, like, the guy in the dog suit and the hotel owner without any context whatsoever. It's just like, here you go. Because uh, in the novel, that's explained why that's happening, right? I don't remember the details. It, I, I mean, I think it was just, it, like, it, it's, like, explicitly explained that, like, the, the hotel owner from the past and, um, like, a guy in, in the book, I think it was a dog costume. In the movie, it's a bear costume or just having, like, a... You know, a homosexual tryst in one of the rooms, and that's what she sees. Yeah. In the, and in the movie, you know, you don't get any of that context. It's just two dudes, and one of them's wearing a tux, and the other one is wearing a, a bear or dog suit, and they're just both clearly being interrupted. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a. I feel like this is going to be one of the more scattered podcasts we've had because I don't like there's feel there's so much about this there, there's movie so much about the that, film, and yeah. I don't feel the need to recap it. And everybody should see it if you haven't seen it already. You know, just go see it. Um, go see it. Go to where they show it. I guess uh, wherever uh, podcast, wherever uh, Yakov's missing DVD oh, set lives. You know what? I also found out at the movie theater when I was over there yesterday. They do children's birthday parties. There was a big sign, you know, have your next birthday party at the Kent Theater. And it said, you know, something just like, you know, it's it's $300 on weekdays, $400 on weekends. And I think it's just like, you know, a couple of bucks per kid. Um, and they all get everything. And then like in, in smaller text on that same sign was just like, bring your own DVD. I'm like, wait a second. I can rent this theater out for $400 to just watch something. And now I'm like, I really want to do that now. You get a meetup together there and, you know, yeah. pray the cost across, you know, 30 people. It'd be totally reasonable. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not like room. a, like a major chain theater. It's just like really rundown, dingy little theater that I love because there are like none left like it anywhere in Brooklyn, I think anymore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm sure they don't have like anybody to report to that. It's just like, Oh yeah, some guy came in here with like a DVD of, uh, you know, the 36 chamber of Shaolin and we played it and then he left. So, um, yeah, I don't think they're going to report me to anybody. So that'd be, <laughs> that'd be great. Um, but yeah, go see this movie. Yes, it's, it's in a, a theater it's a, it's where a, you pay four hundred dollars to bring your own yeah, DVD. That's the way to go. Uh, so it's the, the the weird thing for me is the thing with The Shining is I've seen it several times and I've read a bunch about it and I've seen the miniseries treatment. I've read the book and and so I have I have like a much more uh, a much much bigger collection of sort of random thoughts and perspectives on it than I do when I sit down and watch a movie for the first time or the first time in a long time and like oh well here's my thoughts so yeah I've, I've got like a I decided not to make notes because why would I need to and then I ended up with a page full of notes anyway somehow 
Oh, uh, I, I explicitly, I was just like, I'm going to sit down in the dark and I'm going to, like, concentrate this and watch it, and I did not end up taking any notes, but I think I remember enough about the movie, yeah. like, from all of the, Like, I haven't seen it as probably as many times as you have, but I have read about it a lot, and, um, yeah, like, the, the, the movie itself is sort of like this fixed thing in my head where there's not, like, any surprises around any corners or anything like that, um, but yeah... There was, um, I wanted to mention this, there was, uh, and this was posted to Metafilter a few years ago, uh, there's a guy uh, that has this big website called uh, Collative, C-O-L-L-A-T-I-V-E, is it Collative, Collative, CollativeLearning.com, and if you go slash the space shining, dot HTML, or just look up Collative Learning Shining. We'll transfer Um, a link in the notes. Yeah, there we go. Uh, There's, uh, you know, he's got like large like, large, large chunks of, like, theories about The Shining and, like, with a lot of screenshots and everything. And, you know, some of it just borders on the, like, way, way too, like, speculative and, like, linking things that, you know, aren't necessarily should be linked. But other stuff, he has a couple of videos where he goes over the architecture of the Overlook and how it doesn't make sense. Like, there's windows where they're not supposed to be any windows. There's, like, doors that don't lead to anything. And for that one, you know, like, he just he just has, like, you know, video from the movie and, you know, a floor plan with arrows, and it just makes perfect sense about how the Overlook doesn't make sense. Um, and, I mean, like, I, I just, I watched that this time, like, knowing that, you know, the, the, the inside of the place doesn't match the outside, and that the inside you know, different parts of the inside don't go together, and I think it was like I, I noticed it was specifically more unsettling for that specifically. Yeah, um, it's you know, it's it's a this is one of those things where like I I get into a, a tricky space where I both one of the things I like about Kubrick is how detailed and intentional his filmmaking is, and how his you're, you're not going to find the kind of random lazy continuity goofs in a Kubrick film that you might find in. Uh, films by any number of other otherwise very good you know filmmakers. You know, he's, yeah, there's no like fuck it, just print it with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, like, like he's he, gonna he's gonna retake it, he's gonna plan it out. But this leads, I think, to uh, a sort of cult of Kubrick that feeds some of these crazy sort of like super detailed theories th- where people just go overboard with, it. And, and they go from saying. Stanley Kubrick is very detail-oriented and tries to plan very carefully and will reshoot a bunch of times, too. Stanley Kubrick literally never does anything unintentional, and everything you can find in a film is exactly and fully intentional. Therefore, you know, it's a solid bedrock on which you can build any fucking elaborate theory, and, you know, it's justified. And the thing is, with things like the, the layout of the Overlook... I don't really buy it. Like, it's possible that Stanley Kubrick was specifically sitting down trying to create unsettling architectural impossibilities in the shot-to-shot arrangement of things. But it's also possible that he was just a little bit more worried about getting shots and movement correct than he was about a large-scale reverse-engineered blueprint of the fucking hotel. Well, you that's know? the thing. It 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 um it coheres in like. Uh, long, uh, what do you call it? Long takes. When, like, Danny is on his tricycle and, like, going around corners, he will go around a corner that is, you know, just a couple of feet wide, but they were, with the hallway he came out of, there were doors leading in, and then there's nothing that those doors could possibly lead to. So the set had to have been built explicitly with, like, doors that don't go anywhere. Sure. And then but- that's just, like, one of the, one of the, like, things that the, uh, yeah. 
But yeah, I guess I guess, I guess my argument is I'm going to say maybe it was built that way because Kubrick knew what he wanted in the shot, not because he wanted to specifically communicate something to someone figuring out whether or not that door could go somewhere based on the turn. You know, it's a, and it's it's a gray area because like how can you know unless he sits down and writes a letter that is discovered 30 years later that says I Stanley Kubrick was trying to communicate this specific architectural idea here. But I mean, you look at those shots. I mean, we're talking about like the the, the Steadicam tracking shot on Danny riding around. There was a bunch of those and a bunch of parallel shots elsewhere in the film of other navigating, like running through halls, walking through halls. A huge amount of really wonderful. Uh, steady cam work throughout this film, and the thing is, those this shots. Is the first time I think he's he ever like got to use a steady cam, and uh, yeah, he he really liked using it. And it's it's Which, yeah, it, it, it's yeah. it's amazing. It's it's a hugely effective part of the visual language of the film. It really gives you a sense of feeling of movement. Uh, and and if you don't know to look for it, it still works. It's just like once you know to look for it, it's like, oh, you sort of realize this is a long tracking shot with a lot of turns and it's all really smooth and it's and, – and, and that stuff just really works visually. And I think that's what he was going for is like, hey, you know what? If we do a close, low tracking te- you know, steady cam shot on this kid riding around corners one on this hotel, that's going to look great and feel claustrophobic. And I think that was, you know, so let's lay it out. So, okay, we want to have some turns here and we want to have an excuse to have him wind. And I feel like that is probably a bigger point of informing of the layout of the hotel as you can put together from shots than the notional subtextual impossibility of the architecture. If, if you see what I mean, like like I buy that it's just straight up Stanley Kubrick saying I have a visual goal here, right? Okay, well, what about okay? There is um, there's a moment when uh, what do you call it? Uh, Scatman Crothers, Shelley Duvall, and Danny. I'm going to refer to everybody as their actor names. <laughs> I don't I'm so bad with the character names. When he's uh, taking her to the freezer. Um, he reaches in toward the freezer with his left hand and opens it. The shot on the other side, he's opening with his right hand and the freezer is opening the other way. And I mean, that is, you know, in, in any other movie, that would be like a, a continuity error, like a straight up continuity error. You wouldn't doubt it. But then he'll, you know, Kubrick does another thing. Like in the bathroom, he breaks the 180 degree rule on purpose, specifically to just, you know, like, I mean, have we ever explained what the 180-degree rule is? We may have talked about it once. It's if you're shooting two people standing next to each other in conversation, like one on the left, one on the right, you, can, you can't go past uh, 180 degrees. So, like, you can start from the back of one of the people, and you can swing the camera, like, in front of them and toward the back of the other, but you can't break the line. You can't go start going behind that person shooting there because it, it disorients the viewer when between shots you have two people standing on different sides of the screen, the same person standing on two different sides of the screen. In the bathroom shot, he does this specifically, and it's not like, you know, that... It, it it's not like Stanley Kubrick poorly shot this scene, breaking like a really like very old rule. Like you know, I I've never studied filmmaking, and even this was like explained in like film survey classes. That's like how much of a thing that it is, and why you so rarely see it violated. So taking that in consideration, and then there's the scene where there's like that seeming like continuity break with Scatman Crothers opening the, the freezer, going in the freezer, and then walking out of a different door than the one they went in. So I, I, I feel like like at least some of the stuff with like the, the architecture layout of it not making sense 
had to have been intentional. Well, just because I don't know. maybe it, he, I, would, he would he would he would have had to like really really fuck up for that to have been. An I, accident. I, I I guess I guess I'm engaging on it on a different level. I'm 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 more positing that he's willing to not care about the literalism of the architecture without it necessarily being him sending hidden messages but I mean, if you're through building, the architecture. I, I don't think he's sending a hidden message. I don't think there's any meaning behind it. Like, I don't think, like, oh, the door being over here actually means that Danny is, you know, uh, an alien or, you know, anything like that. But it's just specifically, like, not having the ability to not have any of that those errors there. He built the set. You know, yeah. he, he commissioned the set. He had the full ability at any time uh, to, you know, have it look however it is he conceived it. And I think the guy found blueprints as well. He's just like, he ended up like at the Kubrick archives pulling blueprints for the set. Um, and it's just, it, it's things like that. Like, and I don't think it has much meaning beyond like, this is, you know, like, this is going to like reflect the inner state of like all of the major characters here that, you know, like things have gone like, Things are things are wrong. Thing no, nothing is where it should be. Time doesn't make any sense. Um, and you know, there's there's even a um, him getting let out of the freezer. That is like I think there's like a single moment of actual like supernatural something in this movie, and that's it. And it is like I don't think there's anything else that 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 supernatural that happens that you can't be like, well, what if, you know, they're all just going different degrees of crazy and or psychic. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. Cause I, cause I agree. That seems like, that seems like the one, there is not a good explanation for this moment. Cause like, you know, something in the mansion other than Wendy or Danny presumably would have had to act on that situation. Although at the same time, it's something that happens off screen. So we don't know for sure that it couldn't have been say, Danny wandering around. I, I mean, this is this is speculative because I've not, I haven't gone back and checked the timing on placement and stuff. But you know, you could, you could make the stretch of an argument that maybe Danny somehow was compelled to, you know, lift that pin or whatever, and you know, let him get out. Uh, but you could also argue that you know when Danny got hurt in room two thirty seven, that he actually yeah. got hurt in room thirty seven by you know a creepy old bath lady or whatever. Uh, rather than the other explanation that Jack went and hurt Danny and then ran back to the typing room and then fell asleep and had a nightmare or pretended to fall asleep and have a nightmare, I guess you could argue too if you really wanted to. The thing that I read was that it it happened when Danny went to go get his fire engine and Jack was already up, that that was like the moment because... uh, But But doesn't Danny then subsequently go to room 237 on his big wheel... And then come back, and as Jack oh, has his nightmare. Yeah, I, so that's the thing. I'm I mean, maybe the order of the scenes. Yeah, I guess you could argue that the blue, the bruises were slow developing, and then somehow he messed up his shirt afterwards. But I, yeah, I don't think I don't think there's timing in there to allow. Yeah. Unless we imagine that Jack off camera snuck to two thirty seven, hurt Danny, then ran back, fell asleep, had a nightmare, and then Danny wanders in. You know, so it's like, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the thing about this movie. It 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 lets you fall into these like weird traps of like uh, what do you call it? Um, correlating different aspects of this movie just because of like stylistic similarities yeah. or or like thematic or emotional similarities, and then you start like going down kind of like the same mental route as you know Jack or Wendy are. 
in that you you are like driven to like these these strange interpretations of events and uh and, and of like you know the general like I guess meaning of the movie based on things that might not have anything to do with each other at all. Yeah. Um and, and and in general, yeah. I think I think the film is really successful at doing this strange, moody thing. Like yeah. like that's that's I think fundamentally what works so well. This because if you took this movie at at, at a like straight faced as just a narrative, um, I don't know that it's a particularly great one. It's not necessarily a bad one, but it's not it's not a narrative that described in dry terms of like what the characters do and what the major events are is necessarily anything super interesting. It would certainly be a horror film or a thriller of some sort, but you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be some giant classic. And I think the way that there's all this tremendous amount of mood and tremendous amount of just like slow burn tension built in is really what makes it work. And so, yeah, the fact that we're arguing the details on this is probably uh, fundamentally the, the, the key thing here is yeah, it, it all works. You know, even if we disagree on what you want to take from a specific aspect of it it just it's really it's really fucking successful at selling this general sense of disorientation and worry and second guessing of of the things that happen in the film and um i mean i'm just you know kind of spitballing here none of the family is i mean i guess by then they would be relatively familiar with like the internal structure of the place but i mean even over the course of months if you don't have like a lot of reason to like wander around this empty hotel how much wandering would you do and how well would you know your surroundings to be able to go from like one place to the other in one direct route yeah like yeah, you, I'm, you learn a few major cow paths but you wouldn't you know there's probably whole wings that you wouldn't really have any particular sense of yeah, it's and I mean like that sort of uh, motif, I guess, is repeated in the in the hedge maze too, and then um, I guess at the end, it's uh, I mean it, at the end, it's implied. Is is it implied when when uh, Jack is chasing Danny around the the uh, the the hedge maze? Is it implied that Danny knows like has memorized like a general layout? Of the hedge maze. That's my that take was his on it. Plan. Yeah, I mean, it's it sort of, it, the, you know, it, it's foreshadowed a bit by the fact that Danny and Wendy specifically do go spend time in the you know hedge maze specifically at one yeah, point. And there was very, very heavy-handed foreshadowing to that yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. when they're first like touring the grounds, and uh, the guy, you know, Jack's employer, was just like, you know, don't go into that hedge maze unless you got an hour to spend. Yep. Um, well, and and, and and the the, the tying together visually of moving through the hedge maze with moving through the hotel, yeah. uh, both in sort of sedate happy scenes. You know, there are a bunch of early tracking shots. Uh, the again with the sort of steady cam navigation through the kitchen, through other parts of the hotel that are everything's you know as happy as anything gets in this film. Just a jovial, you know, walk through various parts of it. Uh, that do that sort of corner following thing. Uh, that we then revisit later to some extent with actual chase scenes and, and running in terror scenes. And we get the same thing with the hedge maze where when Wendy and Danny are just sort of having a nice walk through the hedge maze before it started snowing, uh, we get that sort of slow sedate but still sort of claustrophobic steady cam follow shot that is then revisited at the end of the film when, when uh, Jack is chasing Danny through the hedge maze. 
and also um, my single favorite like series like sequence in this movie is uh, Jack just sort of hovering over the model like the the Beetlejuice like model of yeah. the hedge maze, <laughs> and then there's an overhead shot with like and it's the the overhead shot is just hedge maze ground which is lit up. And then very, very stark shadow. And you can't tell whether you're looking at, like, a model, uh, the model of the hedge maze shot with, like, really intense lighting or not. And then you see, and then it slowly zooms in, and you see these two figures moving around in there, and then it keeps zooming in, and you realize this was, like, a very far up overhead shot of the actual hedge maze. And I, I, I love that. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful shot. It's a wonderful little sequence. I love that sort of merging of the two different perspectives and the ambiguity right at that moment when it cuts to that. And that real slow movement on it to sort of resolve it. And and that's one of those things where, like, you know, if you want to take the let's go more fantastical with this, like, you know, it, it, was it resolved or was it not? Not to say that literally they were walking around on the table of the model in there. But, like, you know, that idea that, like, the the, the shot never, like, logically speaking, you know, oh, this is a shot of the actual hedge maze and that's mov- them moving around. But just the framing of it and the feel of it never really commits fully to the idea of, and now we're going to zoom in and clearly we're walking around the hedge maze. It, it like sort of keeps that I'm looking down on a model feel even as it sort of resolves it until it finally cuts abruptly to yeah. uh, Wendy and Danny, you know, at like a eye level shot wandering through the middle of the maze there. Um, yeah, no, I really like that. It's, it's, it's a wonderful little uh, moment of just something that's got a little frisson to it. Um, the, the opening it's, have you ever seen, um, the, the shining trailer? It was like, it was, there, there was like oh, that, yeah. that brief, um, there was that brief, uh, what do you call it? Spurt of, uh, recut trailers to give movies like different feels from what they had. And like the first one was, and like yeah, the, the, the big, well, not, one. maybe not the first one, like, like the first, like really popular one was just called shining. Yeah. And it, and it, it recuts and, it as a, as sort of a romantic dramedy. Yeah. And, like and, a, and, and, you know, they, they, they use a lot of like completely different music that, you know, um, yeah, I can't remember. They, they, they use something that's sort of walking on serious. sunshine at some point. Do they? I, I remember I think they, they used walking on sunshine at the, some point. I feel like or, the big. I feel like it was something sort of moody and emotional for the first half of it, really selling the drama side of it, and then the redemptive things are going to get better side of it was when they cut to right. Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel, and that's when they bring <laughs> in that driving scene, and it's just it is the most perfect fucking thing, like Salisbury Hill and that car winding through the mountains, yes. so fundamentally underwrites the whole sense. Of of drama of that that opening shot in the actual film where you've got the the creepy music and the drive up the mountain. And but yeah, that that opening shot is just such a it, it, it's a cipher. You could do anything with like this car. Just you know, it's 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 a beautiful beautiful vista. It's just like you know, gorgeous footage of like a car and a winding road in um like Colorado in 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 like the mountains and the forest and it's these beautiful shots and it is just like this very almost almost like atonal um like horn heavy uh jarring kind of music it it you know what remind me of the the like a more uh melodic version of like the music from Hannibal Mm, yeah, where like Hannibal is just completely like atonal noises ish. Yeah, Hannibal's, sort of compositions. Hannibal's like it's like it's Hannibal's like theme music is like variations on a THX logo crawl, you know, but all more sort of minor key yeah. resolutions. Uh, but we yeah, have those various tones sort of shifting in concert and you know in the opposite direction of each other sometimes. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and then it the, just all of the scoring in this was was really amazing because it is just very often not music, but it's still the score. Yeah, and it's just sound. Well, I think it, a lot a lot of it is like there's a lot of Leggetti in this, and Kubrick loves Leggetti, and I've I don't. What is Leggetti? Uh, he's a guy, a composer. Uh, oh, G- Gregory Georgi something Leggetti. Uh, I think he's Hungarian, um, but Kubrick used his music in a lot of films, and he does. He's you know a, a modern classical composer, and uh, and he's done a number of things that are on this sort of weird, creepy, atonal side that works so fucking well when you're trying to be unsettling musically. Um, and it's, uh, th- so there's a lot of Ligeti on the soundtrack, as I recall. There's also a bunch of uh, stuff that was, I think, composed. I don't know if it was composed for the film or just stuff that exists, but Wendy Carlos, a bunch of yeah, that, which yeah, explains the sin side of it. You know, and there's a real wait, sort of Wendy Carlos. Did she uh, did she work on this as well? Yeah, yeah. Or, oh, or okay, her music I was, was to in this. I don't know if she specifically yeah. worked on the film or if Kubrick just used stuff, but right. Because I I was for a brief period of time in high school, I was obsessed with the soundtrack to A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah. And there's a real um, there's a real sort of strong sense of continuity between these two films musically in little bits there. Uh, when you think of all that heavy synth stuff in Clockwork Orange, and yeah. then some of that creeps into the soundtrack on this too, even though it's a very different soundtrack overall. Um, but yeah, no, that, that that music is great, and I, I Ligeti, uh, I, I wish I knew more about him. I really just sort of know that his music has been in some Kubrick films, and I've always been super impressed by it when it is. Um, there was a. Did you see Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, you know the little like two note piano theme that recurs throughout that a bunch. You know what? I have not. Um, I have not. Uh, I don't remember any of the music from it, and I really I've been meaning to rewatch it so many times. And the next time I rewatch it, I'll pay attention to the music. Yeah, no, I need to. I need to see it again too. It's been a while. Uh, but anyway, it's it, it's got this this nice little uh, tiny thing from Ligeti. I want to say. Um, that's just piano thing that's very effective, even though it also, I remember a couple of people sort of beefing about it. It's like, oh yeah, we get it with the piano, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a motif. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, the use of this like atonal stuff, uh, and the weird, like high, high frequency discordant strings, like certainly plenty of horror movies have done that, but I feel like it's usually done in more of like a, Hey, I'm going to write a musical composition that's a sort of soundtrack song involving high screeching strings, maybe a little bit more like a, a hacky take on the psycho music. Uh, but the stuff in this was really like unforgivingly just like, no, this is going to fucking hurt your brain and unsettle the shit out of you. And then it would always sort of fade out into some, some deeper stuff. But uh, it's really, really effective. Uh, I had forgotten how much I liked the soundtrack to this film. Yeah. Like, I kind of think of it as a very visual film, but the soundtrack really, really does a lot of work. And the um, the sound itself as well, like, the... I, I completely forgot about this, but, you know, like, all of the shots of uh, Danny and his tricycle, like, when he goes from hardwood floor to carpet to hardwood floor, there's this, like, very, very, you know... When he's on the hardwood floor, it is loud. Like the the sound that the um, that the tricycle makes, it makes this like you know rumbling sort of you know like plastic wheels on hardwood, but like amplified much more than it should be. Um, and like you know just sort of it it's unsettlingly like loud and and harsh. And then when he goes over the carpet, it's almost completely silent, but there's still that like little bit. And then yeah. he goes over hardwood carpet. I forgot about like how just sort of like. 
clearly like, hey, there's this thing happening that was, but then at the same time, how well it worked. Yeah. And also how it didn't have to like, it was it didn't have to like signify anything. It, it was just like sound design affecting the mood of it, and that's and that's. You know, that's as much as I wanted to get to to get into it, and, and it works so well on that level. Yeah, no, it's it, yeah, it's it's a surprisingly effective little element, and it's like the sort of thing you wouldn't really think twice about. It's like a kid riding around on his, yeah. you know, uh, his his big wheel. You probably aren't really thinking about the sound design there, but it, it's just it it keeps things feeling like you know a little bit unsettled. Um, Have you? Do you remember the Saturday morning? This this might be um like you might have been too old for it, but the uh, the saturday morning howie mandel cartoon bobby's world oh god i'm a, yeah I, I never really watched much of it but i am i'm aware of it the opening uh segment the what do you call it the 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 opening to it the, what, what do you call it an animation when, when it's the opening is it just the opening sure yeah the opening to the it. intro maybe i don't know yeah the intro animation is is shot from the same exact perspective as Danny shot in this movie of a kid on his tricycle. <laughs> it, it and and you know he's held you know steady in center frame through the most of the opening while all the stuff moves around him. And um, yeah, the first time I noticed that I was just like, oh, that you know they're similar. And then I watched it again. I'm like, no, they're not similar. This is this this is you know by no means an accident. It couldn't be. Yeah. I, um, so I yeah, like I the, the, the 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 title sequence for BoJack Horseman. I don't think is intended as any sort of direct allusion to that, but I like that it functions in the same way, just oh, yeah. thrown around reverse. And, you know, it's, a, it's a camera on BoJack instead of a camera behind BoJack, but still you have that, this sort of yeah. steady tracking. That that's a um, that's a Snorri cam, which they didn't have in this movie. But I wish that that, that would be cool. But yeah, the the thing that they did. If, if you don't know about the Snorri cam, it's. Um, it's a camera rig designed by a guy named Snorri, um, somewhere I assume Northern Europe. Um, but the the rig stays on you, and the steady cam instead of tracking to gravity tracks to your head. Yeah. And so whenever you move your head, your head remains um, steady on screen, and the background moves around, and it can be super disorienting. Have you ever seen um, Pi? Darren Aronofsky's like yeah, first movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They use it in Pi a lot, and it is just they 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 use it to good effect. It's I I I like the Snorri cam when it's used judiciously. You did, can't use it, you know. Yeah. Too much, did but, they use uh, that? Was, was that one of the sequences in Train Spotting? I want to say there was a a, a Snorri cam sequence. On, I haven't seen uh, Train Spotting in so long. I want to say on Ewan McGregor at one point uh, there was a sequence, but I, yeah, I can't remember for sure. Um, yeah, it's something. It's something that can work really well, and it can also be done really annoyingly and not interestingly. Yeah. And I, one of the things I remember, we talked a little bit. There was sort of a Snorri Cam esque. I don't know if it's actually that or just a close approximation of that. In it follows early on when she was in the wheelchair, um, and there was oh, some yeah. tracking shot on 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 the main character. I think uh, so. Yeah, it was. It was definitely close to the same effect. Whether or not it was yeah. specifically that technique, it was. Accomplishing the same thing roughly. It, I think it might have. They might have been using the wheelchair as the dolly, and so it was. You know, just it was. It was moving with the wheelchair, so the wheelchair stayed in the frame. Yeah, because it, it had a little bit more play than a super yeah. steady, like tight on the head sort of tracking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, similar sort of thing. It creates this this the, the, this this strong focus that takes us away from normal camera movement. Where normally, if you want to have someone as a strong focus in the close-up of a shot, you're going to you know move them through the camera frame appropriately. Yeah. 
or have them sort of stop in frame, but you're not going to actually tie the frame physically to them. So it, it creates that different sort of service of what we would expect in, in terms of camera movement compared to traditional cinematography. Um, gosh, this movie, there's so much in this movie. It really uh, is, yeah. the, 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 the cast is really great. Um, and I say that as someone who kind of can't even stand Shelley Duvall. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't like I, her at all. I have like not as a personal. I don't think she's a jerk or anything. Right, but, but you know, right. never just, just as an actress. She, I find, I find her just sort of like vaguely unsettling. I don't know. It's just like one of those weird, random how your brain is wired about faces. She's got a face that, like, my brain's like, I don't know, I don't know. It, it, I have since very young childhood had an enormous crush on her. Uh, like possibly like one of the like most consistent like actresses I've had a crush on in my life has been Shelley Duvall. Um, well, and you're not alone. I mean, I, I don't think that I am in the dominant position in thinking that she's, that there's something unsettling about her. I think it's just like, again, like something, some little, Oh no, I, I agree. There's definitely my brain. something unsettling about well, her. And I think, and I think maybe, yeah. maybe that's one of those things like people, like, I think she's someone who has a really distinctive face. And I think it's one of those things where a very distinctive face is going to produce a distinctive reaction to an extent yeah. that, you know, not so much. Like I know people like, like, like I know people who think Sophia Loren looks weird and I think Sophia Loren looks beautiful, but you know, she's also got distinctive features in, in a way. And I've got like, I've been on the flip side of that coin with a number of other like famously beautiful women. I was like, I, kind of, I don't know, you know, and versus like maybe a much more, uh, pretty, but in the median sort of face that a lot of people say, Oh yeah, that's, it's a pretty person. But uh, this is the least interesting thing we could discuss about <laughs> this. Uh, the, the the point is, I think ca- character wise, like she, her energy. I think she has sort of a weird energy about her, but it works really, really well in this film. I think better than like casting her as like you know someone yeah. in a like just an actual romantic comedy or something, which she would probably be fine for. But I'd be like, eh, I don't really like Shelley Duvall. Whereas in this, I'm like, she's From great as this person who's having this fucking meltdown in this terrifying situation. From what I understand of what I've read about the making of this movie is that Kubrick terrorized her on set to get her into like the mindset of somebody being terrorized. Yeah, I remember there was um, a lot of like a lot of shouting, a lot of really belligerent interactions, and I was never clear on how much of that was like intentional manipulation versus a fortuitous failure of him to like what she was doing to the point where he ended up being so upset that he got what he wanted out of her as a result of being a huge asshole about not getting what he wanted out of her. I don't know. I don't know exactly how that played out tactically, but uh, yeah, I remember Kubrick anecdote. Um, you know how in Dr. Strangelove, Dr. Strangelove wears those like thick um, black gloves the, uh, on his, you know, on the, the robot hand. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Stanley Kubrick got the idea to do that when he was personally adjusting some lights on the set and, you know, you couldn't touch the lights without gloves, and so somebody, you know, he had to get these gloves to do it, and he's like, oh, this would be a great idea for the character. But, like, the <laughs> idea that he was, like, personally, he's just like, fix the light. No, to the light. Uh, fuck it. I will do it. Yeah. Getting a ladder, going up there, adjusting the light, you know, a single light for the shot. Like, that is the, that that is, like, one of those uh, 
the, the, the things uh, about him the that like makes him sound stuff. like an amazing director and like the worst person to ever. <laughs> yep. Well, and and part of the background in him is like before he ever got into film, he was a photographer and he's a really good photographer. Yeah. Um. And so he, you know, that 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 is part of why I think you know the cinematography in his films is always really fucking excellent. Is he's not just hands on with that, but really, really all about it. Um. You know. And- the you know, the funny part is like you know he did have like a a a career as a uh, he was like a press photographer I think or like a, ju- a photojournalist and then he was done with that and he did movies he had like this entire storied career in photojournalism I think he was done with it by the time he was like twenty three twenty four yeah he was real young when the, he started moving on to film yeah and um, he was yeah he was he was destined for great things I yeah think. so that, that that whole thing with adjusting the lighting it's it's both on the obsessive side and also sort of like a well if you're like you know really serious about photographic composition you're probably also really serious about thinking about lighting too and yeah you may have a very specific idea the lighting in this film this is one of the interesting things about just this is entirely a production side of it uh, but this film uses uh, almost entirely uh, principal lighting uh, to, to light the, the scenes, which is to say almost all of the lighting you see is lighting that is just lighting, light being produced in and around the set as elements oh. of the set. So like the light coming through the windows, you know, this, when you're shooting on a set inside, you have to just like sort of create outside light. And so, you know, they used big floods to create outside light coming in. They put lights, you know, on the set – uh, you know, like light fixtures, literally, and that's basically the light in almost all the film. I, I think he he more or less avoided adding in extra, you know, fill lights he, and whatnot, and yeah, just he tried did the to, same thing on Barry Lyndon. Yeah, and Barry Lyndon was and, a big deal with the amount yeah, they, they of low light to, photography they pulled off. In particular, he had to buy a lens from NASA. Yeah, yeah, or like a lens designed for NASA to get like enough light into the you know into the into the into the camera to actually be able to see what's going on. Yeah, doing candlelit interior scenes with no additional lighting is you know a difficult thing to do, and was especially at the time. Yeah, I remember there was some spat about you know maybe someone wanted to borrow the lens, and he said no. Maybe Spielberg wanted to borrow it, but there's a lot of stories about spats with with Kubrick that I feel like are more like Stanley Kubrick pissing people off. Well, and to some extent, you know, him pissing people off, but also just people wanting things and him saying no, and somehow that's <laughs> something other than someone saying no. Like he was like, there was a there's a I don't even remember the details anymore. But uh, along with being a Kubrick fan growing up, I was also a Pink Floyd fan growing up. And in theory, maybe Pink Floyd was going to do the soundtrack for 2001, but then they didn't, and it's not clear exactly how that played out. And and so I think in theory, there's like a grudge between them, and then it went in the other direction too at some point later. I don't I, – I, I remember a sense of tiredness at discussing this at length like on Usenet <laughs> more than I remember the details of the story. But like, you know, it's one of those things. It feels like there's a lot of these like, oh, yeah, and Kubrick and but don't like it. And – that I feel like was more like Kubrick was doing what he was doing and was not always particularly accommodating about not not doing what he was doing. I don't know. It feels like th- there's a little bit of like the the reclusive director things leads to building up this mythos of 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 interactions above and beyond just like you know slightly difficult obsessive artist is slightly difficult and obsessive. That I don't know. It's hard to parse out. I guess the, <laughs> this is the long form: the man versus the myth thing i'm saying here but uh i don't know it would have been interesting to just like be buds with kubrick i think and get like that perspective on it rather than this sort of gawk gawking ish you know outside perspective on the whole thing based on people's anecdotes and whatnot 
What does the last shot of the movie mean? Uh, oh, with uh, Jack Where, when in the it, photo? It zooms in on like a photo from 1924, uh, July 4th ball, and he is like at the forefront of it. Yeah. Um, in the photo. What, what, is, is that supposed to be taken completely, um, symbolically? Is that actually happening? I don't know. I mean, I, perspective is it from? I think, I think, uh, I, I think you could argue it any direction you wanted to. I mean, you could say that maybe he is like, like Jack Torrance is literally to some extent, the physical reincarnation of someone who had been present in 1921. And so it's not so much that he showed up in that photo suddenly as he showed up at this hotel because of a sequence of events that led his reincarnated vessel to revisit it. You know, the fact that Grady says you've always been the caretaker here could be a reference specifically to him having been the caretaker in 21 or quote unquote him. Uh, maybe it's the photo edit itself to bring him into the well of souls that is the Overlook Hotel after he died out in the hedge maze. Uh, maybe it's a figurative picture of him. I mean, like, do you have a do you have a opinion on this? Do you have like a firm I don't, sense? But I, I was just thinking of just you know super actual like supernatural things in this movie, and you know besides the the door opening, which was you know like every. All of like the weird shit in this movie is happening clearly from the perspective of one of the characters in it. Yeah, like there, there's no point in which just like a weird thing happens and nobody's there to see it. Yeah, or like a weird thing happens and somebody's just like, "What was that?" Yeah, you it's know, always it's always very much something being experienced by one of our very few yeah. Characters. So who's experiencing that shot? Well, yeah, that's it. maybe is it is it the viewer? Maybe the overlook is experiencing that. Maybe the whatever vague sort of uh, presence or consciousness of the overview overlook is viewing itself. And that picture doesn't actually exist in any physical realm. It just exists in the overlooks image of its collection of souls. It has some vague sense of understanding of this moment in time in 1921, where probably something terrible happened. Uh, But at the same time, it only exists as this weird sort of non-human amalgamation of these, you know, ideas and this consciousness and this sense of self. And so it's looking at its own image. It's looking, if you will, in a mirror, which there's a shitload of in this. There is a lot of mirrors in this movie. So maybe that's, maybe that's us finally seeing the overlook as a character of its own, right? That's the first perspective shot we get of the overlook looking at itself. Yeah. I mean that, that makes about as much sense as anything else does. Um, I, I, I like that. The, um, the there's uh what do you call it? Yeah, there's a lot of mirrors in this. Um, I, I don't think I even caught all of them. Well, a lot of it, you know, some of them are conspicuous and some of them are just sort of there. I mean, there's a, there's a number of shots that are very conspicuously framed via mirrors. Um, one one of the shots of uh, in in the bedroom of their apartment at the hotel, you've got Jack in bed, and it's it looks like it's just a shot of Jack in bed until the camera movement establishes that it's a shot of a mirror. Shelley Duvall starts moving away from him when she walks in. Cause this is when she wheels that card in and has like that big yeah. tray of food, yeah. right? Yeah. So when the way that the shot is framed is you can't tell that you're looking at a mirror until Shelley Duvall steps in front of the mirror, like blocking her own reflection. So you can't see it. Um, and then starts walking away from him. Yeah addressing him and then it just sort of comes out and you realize she's walking towards the person we've been looking in a mirror and I thought that was like a really sort of uh, clever um, 
sort of like little jarring kind of thing. It's like, why is she going the uh, okay? Yeah, yeah. I've seen um, that. I've seen that used in a, a few other films too. It's it's a strong technique. It, it it works well to sort of disorient. And if we want to talk about yeah, the idea of using disorientation as a tool in the film, that's uh, a much much smaller, much subtler detail than any notional major architectural fuckery. But it it just works. It adds. It contributes to that sense of of unease and being you know off your sure foot. The um the all of the the the, the papers the the uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Is that what's on those papers, or is is Shelley Duvall having you know like a hallucination? I think that's what was on the papers. I think Jack had really fucking gone down a well, um, and I don't know that it even requires that he literally be insane and not realize that he's typing nonsense. Like I think it could very well be him suffering tremendous writer's block and as a result, like, you know, sort of jokingly, but not just typing to type and like, you know, and that sort of like got blended in with him also actually legitimately losing his shit. Uh, but no, I, I think, I think that was actually on the paper is my take on it. I feel like I did that in school once. Just, just typed a bunch of nonsense. To, did it to by hand. Typing. Yeah. We had a. I had an English teacher who was very, very upset with the class. And to be fair, we were all a bunch of little shits. <laughs> and she was just like, "You have to like. I don't know if we had to like copy something out of a book or like answer some things that you know. I like at least I knew that she wasn't going to grade and that this was like purely, purely punitive. Yeah, punitive and busy so, work. Yeah, and so I just wrote all work and play makes Jack a dull boy on like both sides of at least one sheet of loose leaf paper and just hand that in as my assignment. Um. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting idea. What if he had actually written something, but she was having that specific... Uh, yeah. Diff- but see here... Okay, so here's... Now that we've established that the movie seems to be a, a cipher and difficult to get a coherent explanation about, let's try and put together some coherent explanations about <laughs> it. I think we can finally crack this nut. Uh, what... Seriously, the, the the way in which like the idea of the shining itself, that the the stuff that the, the uh, actual power, yeah, the the stuff Scatman Crowther talks to talks to Danny about. He sort of mm-hmm. talks about the idea of you know, there's a clear sense of ability to do direct psychic communication between people because he you know talks to Danny a little bit you know in his head. Yeah, the, yeah, he they, talks, they, they, there was telepathy. That was yeah. the just straight up telepathy. Yeah, uh, he, he talks about how he and his grandmother could do that. Um. And, and and so there's this this idea of that, and the idea that this can happen in a place too, and like a, a place can sort of have a shine to it, and the idea that the overlook has that, and maybe it's essentially sort of some sort of spiritual stain from uh, from bad things that happen, like you know something leaves a psychic mark when something terrible of some sort occurred. Um, so there's this idea being posited here of, of, of some kind of like psychic energy. Some so like you know the hotel in a sense is a a, a psychic capacitor uh, storing up these these psychic memories. Uh, there's a moment in the film, and this is this is the thing the, the film has a number of shining type moments happening littered throughout it, but for the most part, they're very much littered throughout it, along with some much more. Uh, procedural like human interactions that don't have any sort of you know mystical or spooky component to them, just like a lot of conversations between Danny and Wendy and and Jack. Uh, but then there's the moment when 
when Dick Halloran gets the axe in the chest right. and dies. And I feel like that is the moment that like everything sort of unhinges. Like that's that's where we suddenly start getting a bigger density. Wendy starts seeing shit. Like this is yeah. the first time she's seen anything. I think. Um, assuming yeah, she that, sees the blood and then she sees the skeletons. Yeah, yeah, the skeletons and the 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 amorous uh, bear. Uh, you know, so she starts suddenly seeing all these things. And and so my theory is that in the same way that the Overlook is sort of a capacitor of these psychic things, anyone with a strong uh, shining inside of them as a person is also that. And, and Dick Halloran getting the ax is like the Dick from the EPA turning off uh, the power grid in Ghostbusters, like everything just unbottled. So I feel like Wendy was getting a big dose of, and the, the, the hotel in general was maybe everything was having a big dose of uh, that just because all of a sudden Dick Halloran was unbottling a ton of pent up uh, shine and so that was sort of like a catalyst for a big. So it was just like a psychic grenade going off at the yeah, moment of his exactly, death. exactly. And so, then Danny felt it more severely because he also had the shine. Yeah, so um, so Danny gets a big dose of it. Wendy manages to get it. Jack is probably like, to whatever extent there was. I don't know if Jack was in any sense redeemable at that point because he just <laughs> murdered a dude with an axe. Yeah. But you know, maybe like that. Just that's the fucking freight train is you know going over the cliff at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, because at that moment, Danny screams, and, like, Jack knows, like, exactly where he is. Yeah. And I think more than you would be able to if, um, you know, if a kid just screamed somewhere in this giant hotel. Yeah, instead of... Like, there was, like, a sort of supernatural-ish, like, tracking of, of, of him. Yeah. Um, that I guess, like, he loses by the time he gets outside, and, like, cause, or, I mean, it could be, you know, deadened because of the environment, because he's in, like, a very harsh environment that he was not prepared for yeah um, yeah i could i the 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 you know that the, the, their brains are like uh big psychic capacitors i think i read a little bit about dr sleep which is the novel that is the sequel to the shining novel oh right i, I know um, of it but i know nothing about it and like yeah uh people with shine like releasing um like a large burst of psychic energy like at the moment of their death or when they're in in, in intense pain, uh, figures into that novel. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, um, the I that there's um. Did you notice that there's like a a collapse of of, of time with the, uh, the what, what do you call them the um. The, the the cards that show the time or like yeah, the the, the, yeah, the scene yeah the title cards yeah. or whatever where the, the the title cards sort of start with like general ideas and then get super super like it starts with like the interview and which is you know like an event that takes place in time but you know it's just at some point and it's just like it reads like a scene name and then it goes just like a five mo- months later what's well, like a month later oh yeah like a month later and then you know Monday and eventually it just like gets to like the very hour that things yeah. are happening and like eight a.m. four p.m. yeah I really like that like I guess it's a reverse exponential kind of thing where it just gets lo- logarithm no would that be logarithmic uh no it'd be like a uh, a power of curve. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't remember the right term for it. But yes, yes, what you're saying. Essentially, a reverse exponent. Yes, it it, yeah, it gets yeah, it, it gets just much gets tighter. Like sort of like an abstract, like you know, an extra abstract point in time to like a very very specific point in time. Um, you know, the weirder and weirder things get. 
yeah, it, it narrows down there in a way that – it, it's great how something as simple as that can have a real sense of tension just by itself. Like as you get yeah. – like you know you were reaching a fixed point when you keep getting more and more specific about you know how much time has passed and it's shorter and shorter windows. It's got that asymptotic feel like at some point we are going to stop you know, and it really sells that in a way uh, that I think is 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 effective. You know, and it's, and, and those those title cards, it's almost you know, it's it's very overt. You know, it's you know, you could you could say cheesy if you wanted to, um, just because it's such a big you know, go to black with a big white uh, Helvetica bold, uh, uh, and and a big burr you know, sort of thing. Like it's the sort of thing, like if you actually did that right now today, I feel like people would maybe giggle a little bit, but at the time, yeah. uh, I, I think it was more effective and it, it remains reasonably effective in the film itself. Like this is a film. I mean, that, yeah, like, it's, it's sort of like, you know, if you're watching a silent movie and like the card with a dialogue pops up, you're not going to be like, Oh, pff, look at this dumb shit. It's like, no, it's like a part of the movie. You have to, you have to, you know, like you have to take it with the movie. And I think like the note cards in this work that way as well. Yeah. They, they fit like the, 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 the mood and the aesthetic of the movie and they're established so early that, you know, like they become like a regular and expected part of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, plus, you know, we've all seen law and order. So, um, what if what if someone put out an, an edit of The Shining that changed nothing except for whenever those title cards came up, it was like a tunk tunk. Like that would be that would be amazing. Uh, <laughs> and just have the um, instead of having like the really imposing music playing over all of the riding through the mountain scenes, it's just a Law and Order theme instrumental, yep. like a longer and like an extended cut of it. Um, In the hotel caretaking industry, there are <laughs> two branches of. Uh, yes. Uh, God, there's, I'm going to glance at my yeah. notes here because there's there's so much, and I don't actually want to talk for like three fucking hours. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but I also this is don't want alien. Just, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the Helvetica. I had forgotten that oh. the titles of the film was that sky blue Helvetica. It's like there's this weird color that like. It's really sort unassuming of, credits. Yeah, like, like it, the, it looks like the credits off someone's like you know, I mean, it looks a little bit better than this, but it could essentially be the credits on someone's like you know, direct to VHS, literally made on a VCR, sort of like, well, how about blue? Blue looks good. Yeah, you know, it, it, it does not scream this is a horror film. It you know, and it it does not you know scream. It doesn't scream design to me. Right. Like I, I tend to think of Kubrick's use of text as a little bit more. Really, really on the, and I feel like the even the black title cards were more effective here than the than the blue titles. But I don't know wh- what am I expecting from the titles? Like a big dripping the shining logo because that would have been weirdly <laughs> tasteless on his part. Well, in the uh, Goosebumps movie, it starts off with very, very similar titles, and then it says Goosebumps, but then the goose it transforms into the Goosebumps logo. So <laughs> we should just cut like that onto it because i think the the opening to goosebumps is also just a car driving through like a sort of scenic vista but shot like very differently um and it's you know like a small town instead of just desolate well not desolate but uninhabited like woodland fucking terrifying this movie like has Perm- between this and the Blair Witch Project, I don't want to go into woods. <laughs> I, I don't want to go into the woods, I don't want to go into the mountains, I don't want to, you know, like even living in a detached house would be weird. The, 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 you know, the, 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 the woods is great. You know, you you actually don't usually get murdered in the woods. Ah, 
I, I, I want to take a, a, a quick aside here because I don't remember if I talked about this previously at the time. <laughs> Have you murdered several people in the woods and this, this is your confession? Well, yes, but no, no, there's a, this is, this is a thing that I am certain no one <laughs> has seen except for like me and, and according to YouTube, 205 other people. And probably at least three of those are me revisiting it. <laughs> uh, it's a, <laughs> It's a thing done by – I'm not even totally sure if the guy who made it is the guy I know or just a guy who a guy I know knows. Uh, but it's uh, called Poopin' Beaks Presents The Shining, and it's an hour-long fucking animated cartoon. I'll send you a link to it. Uh, but it's 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 actually a pretty doting tracking of the entire plot and significant portions of The Shining as a weird meta cartoon where – uh, most of the people in the film are the names of the actors. The people in the film, like Jack Torrance, is actually Jack Nicholson. Uh, and it's it's I, I have no way to explain this satisfactorily. But Poop and Beak presents is because Poop and Beaks is a thing that was a habit of the person who made this before they got around to making this hour long uh, reconstruction of The Shining. Uh, and it just involves like eating and pooping birds' beaks in this bizarre you know, cartoonish fashion that I can't even explain. I don't understand where it came from, but this is simultaneously an hour long riff on the shining. And also something where there's frequently pooping of beaks. And I, I cannot explain it, but it's kind of amazing to watch because it is so much a film based on the shining. And it, I, I'm just throwing it out there. So I don't forget to mention it later on, but poop and beaks presents the shining, I can't really recommend that anybody go watch this, but at the same time, I strongly recommend that everybody go watch this is sort of where I am on it. Uh, just wanted to get that out of the way so I can stop <laughs> trying to remember. I want to stop thinking to myself, oh, say the thing about poop and beaks. Um, but it's, it's – yeah, it's it's weird. You should check it out. Uh, business dudes in Santa Kubrick movies. Like the opening of this film, this is a – this film slows like, – opens slow. Like it really takes its time getting to anything happening other than us having a vague sense of unease based on things potentially hinted at in conversation and, and sort of in the tone of the whole thing. Uh, and one of the things it does is it opens up with a lot of conversation. Like there's a bunch of conversations that are on the surface, at least pretty banal. Yeah. Um, and it, it sort of reminds me of uh, 2001 in particular. Where you have oh, a yeah, similar the beginning thing. is all like quasi bureaucratic astronaut stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. After that first, you know, twenty or so minute segment with the the dawn of man. Monkeys. Yeah. Then we then we jump into the future and we get yeah all this uh, sort of government bureaucracy conversation and really sort of stilted, intentionally non informative, non insightful, you know, sort of coldly pleasant conversations. And you have these business dudes just sort of doing their business dude things, and it's not interesting, it's not fun, it's not funny, it's not dramatic. It's just seriously people being as boring as people actually would be in situations where they're sort of required to not do anything interesting. Uh, but it's what we're watching. And then you have the same thing with, with, with uh, Mr. Ullman, uh, Stuart Ullman, when we're watching – uh, the opening of this film, he has that interview with Jack and whatnot. And yeah. there's a lot of talking and like the narrow important bit of that conversation comes down to like two basic ideas. A, it can be kind of claustrophobic up here. Y'all going to be okay with that. Well, sure. B, 
Also, some guy totally killed his family up here because it's claustrophobic and he was crazy. Y'all okay with that? Well, I guess so. You know, and you could you could have done that probably in twenty seconds. Yeah, you know, or, but they, or they had like the entire like drawn out. And I mean, was that supposed to be? I I can't tell. The one thing I can't tell about Jack's character is how much of you know like a a dangerous you know person like sort of like a psychotic dangerous person is from the outset because the way that he like speaks with them in this like very sort of oddly like shallow contemptuous but not really way that there's just something about like the way he relates in that scene that that, that the other two guys are just you know 70s business guys and he is just kind of something very different yeah um well, and I think I think one of the valuable bits of that scene going on for a while is we get a chance for him. Like I feel like he ends up seeming a little bit restless by the end of it, which yeah. I think works well to sort of establish the idea of a veneer of of patience and civility on a guy who maybe is not really actually great at that. So in, in that sense, like doing that as a scene, it's as much as anything about – him sort of trying not to fidget and trying to keep on smiling and saying that sounds fine through, you know, an extended experience of that sort of, is it implied that he lost his job as a teacher because of his drinking? Yes. That was my take. My take was basically there was stuff that happened there that they don't want to talk about. And so they're just sort of walking around it. Uh, because yeah, otherwise they like probably they're, 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 when they, there's a point when they argue when I think well not when they argue I think this is like long after the point that he's completely flipped out uh, when he's been like yelling about oh no no maybe it was before that because he a couple of times like yells about like his responsibilities to the to the you know to the Overlook Hotel and his job yeah. and like just like that very very absurd scene when he's like flipping out on her she's got the bat and he and like that's like the big explosion part of it is like about his responsibilities and I mean that was like that is like intentionally like incredibly darkly funny, right? Yeah, no, no, that I, I, has I think to be. Yeah, like, like, like it's 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 freaky and you're you're scared for her and you like don't know what's going to happen here. But at the same time, it is there's that weird absurdity of like exploding over something that obviously you shouldn't. And that's a recurring theme too with a character. Yeah. Like, and they, I, I think the the film is much less explicit about this, or at least less frequently explicit about it than I think I remember the book being. Where sort of Jack's sort of obsessive relationship with the idea of the hotel and his relationship to it uh, was something that did sort of a slow build and became more and more part of the sort of thinking and, and whatnot throughout the novel. In the film, we, we just get that a couple of times, but we get it in a pretty effective way. Like there's that big rant when he's already well into super crazy, we don't know what the fuck is going on with this guy mode. But earlier when they're having that conversation in uh, their apartment and Wendy's really upset, you know, they're worried about um, – they're they're worried about Danny, um, and I think he's gone to two thirty seven, and he's had his freaky interaction there, and then he's come back. He's like, I didn't see a thing, and then they actually have like a reasonably calm, civil, even sort of comforting seeming conversation where he's seeming like he's listening and he cares and he wants to comfort her and he wants you know her to know things are going to be okay, and then she brings up the idea of getting Danny out of there, and then he he. Goes super fucking nasty. Like he, he just like and, loses and his that's shit. When, and that's when he talks about like, you know, what are we going to do if we go back to Boulder? Am I going to like shovel snow? And like, I think like that was supposed to be implying that like he can't go back to being a teacher. Yeah. Like, that part. Yeah. That, like, like, like he that lost is, his job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, no, that, that was my read too. Like, uh, the, uh, 
with that, the, the the story about the reason that Danny got hurt was because you know he pulled him off of his papers and he pulled too hard. Is that what happened, or is that what Jack and Wendy have convinced themselves happened? Yeah, I don't know, and I think it it it, it very pointedly works as a plausible thing either way. You could buy it as Jack was just sort of drunk and pulled too hard. You could pull it as Jack was drunk and angry and like intentionally pulled really hard. Not that he was necessarily specifically trying to injure Danny, but also maybe that he wasn't really particularly trying not to. Like, you know, I I don't know that it, I I don't particularly get the vibe that he was like, okay, I'm angry. So I'm going to like break my kid's arm exactly. But at the same time, the distinction between just not caring enough to try not to and trying to, it's, it's sort of unparsable. I don't think there's enough material in the film to tell, uh, right. But I think it's designed specifically to make it something that does feel very ambiguous that way, and that's that's as, as effective as saying I think uh, looking at look, looking at that conversation that Wendy has early on with the doctor about yeah. the situation is the most effective part of that whole thing. I don't think you really need anything else in the film really to nail it down as much as the sheer discomfort on both ends as she tells this sort of uh, apologetic story about how you know she's preemptively apologizing and explaining away how Jack didn't, you know, couldn't possibly have done anything, you know, wrong or intentional. It's like, you're telling this this way because you know that someone's going to listen to you and think, yeah. Jack is a danger to your kid, which he is, which he very much <laughs> is. <laughs> and maybe he wouldn't have been particularly... Somebody might get the right idea about this. But yeah, there's, there's very much the idea that there's this thing inside of him regardless of whether or not it was going to come out again without a uh, supernatural event. Um but yeah, I wanted to go back to the the, the biz guy thing, like that 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 plasticity, like Kubrick's biz guys. They they are these stiff and plastic. Uh, I, I what what I think of I think of as this maybe just like of an older like nineteen fifties hat wearing model versus like you know if I think of like you know the biz guy that I'm not supposed to particularly trust in a movie with more contemporary films. I think of you know oh, if from it's like an, the eighties to, yeah, to, to like now. Yeah, if it's, it's like, like an 80s film it's gonna be like a, yeah, yeah, sleazy guys. Like, you know, in the eighties probably a coked up sleazy guy, you know. The the editor was from, from Die Hard. Oh uh, uh yeah that guy he was like Yeah. Yeah, yeah, him. Or uh or or the the, the guy in charge in in the mouth of madness, the the book editor yeah. dude, you know and so yeah it's it's sort of interesting to see this sort of like Softer, like not not softer exactly, but but less less actively sleazeballish, less more just antagonistic. Like, yeah, j- just just straight up, sort of you know, unengaged with human concerns, sort of feeling, <laughs> just very business like business guy, you know, where they have an affability that itself comes off as very sort of rehearsed and conservative. Uh, it's just an interesting thing. Like I, I don't feel like I, I feel like that's something specifically informed by maybe Kubrick's view of business people from a slightly earlier era than the pop cultural view of that I have as someone younger. Yeah, it's like a pre-Gordon Gecko business guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that's I, I I didn't notice that, but yeah, like the business guys in this were not particularly like it didn't seem like they were like he was getting a raw deal or something. It sounded it sounded like they were like really trying to prime him for what was going to happen and you, and you don't get that sort of um like sort of brutal honesty from like business people a lot it's always just like you didn't tell me it was going to be this and it's like well we wouldn't have you know something money something if we did um yeah yeah more like they're just literally doing (laughs) their business job 
they are a business adult doing a work <laughs> job. Uh, there's a there's I, a wait, thing. I, I, would, I want to ask one thing: Is Tony a protagonist in this movie? I don't I know. I think he is. He is. It seems like he's constantly trying to keep Danny out of trouble. And, like, the weirdest thing he does is, like, you know, when he's sort of, like, fully in control of Danny, he picks up the knife and checks if it's sharp. But even that was just, like, it was creepy as hell to watch. But, like, why he was doing it, it seems just, like, to make sure that Shelley Duvall would be able to actually defend herself. Yeah. When and, like, the rest of the time, you know, he, 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 tells, he tells Danny to not tell people about, like, his ability to shine. And that's a good idea because that, you know, that, that's... Pe- you know, people might not take kindly if he continues to insist on it yeah. that he can do that. And, um, yeah, I feel like Danny is sort of like, I mean, not Danny, Tony is like looking out for the family in a not very effective way. Um, but like still that like, you know, there was a character in this movie like that was sort of roughly in the same role as, as uh, O'Halloran was in, in yeah. that they were trying to save at least somebody. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting. So, so the question of whether Tony is a character or not. I mean, I it's another one of those. I don't think we have enough information to to say because is Tony actually another person, another consciousness who shares like, a vessel with Danny, or is what I the, feel like Tony is is that is that like um, O'Halloran said that like you know his grandmother taught him about like his shine very early on, and so he's always been able to sort of like incorporate it into himself as a part of himself. I think with Danny, it would be so jarring and so like something people don't tell you about and something you don't know about that he kind of like externalized it as Tony. Yeah, and that it it takes you know it you know Tony takes more or in this case it would be like his like you know ability to do something, you know, supernatural and, and beyond human ability takes, like, you know, takes its guise as Tony, who then tries to, like, protect the family. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he tried to show Danny, like, what would what was going to happen in the hotel in maybe, like, a metaphoric way, but, you know, that wasn't able to do anything. He kept trying to tell people, you know, the red rum thing, which was just, you know, like, him trying to warn people of murder, the checking the knife thing. Um you know, not being around when the psychiatrist asked about him, or like the when the doctor asked about him, he was like specifically like, you know, Tony's not around right now, it's just so the doctor wouldn't be able to see, you know, like the sort of serious weirdness that you know this uh, this like externalization has become. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's 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 my sort of feel about it too. Is that it's not that Tony is actually a separate being so much as Tony is. Uh, yeah, Danny's way of trying to understand what he's experiencing and, and this, this sense of input coming from somewhere other than his own sense of his experience of the world makes it this person sort of telling him things. So, yeah, no, I, I think I have I think the same basic vibe. Um, and, you know, you could argue it in the other direction, too. You could argue that, you know, maybe uh, Halloran, because he was taught to think of it as a power, thinks of it that way, even though maybe it is, in fact, sort of like a, a spiritual companion or something. And so it could be him, you know, going in another direction with it. But, but yeah, I'm not sure if it – I'm not sure if it really makes a difference. Either way, Tony definitely functions as a separate personality from the Danny we have access to as a little boy, regardless of what the nature of it is. Um but yeah, no, I, I, yeah, the idea of of Tony as a defense mechanism in any case is really interesting, and that's that's sort of how I've I've parsed it. Is that it, there's some part of Danny that he doesn't understand himself that becomes what he relies on in some situations, 
Well, and and to an extent, you know, I mean, part of what happens with like in the film in particular, we see, you know, via Tony or via The Shining, you know, Danny has some access to some really terrifying, upsetting imagery. And I don't know that necessarily he would have seen a whole lot of that uh, previously. Um, but, you know, presumably he has seen some things that have upset him via that, you know, just in the course of more normal daily life, especially if he's sensitive in some sort of Haley Jewell Osment sixth sense way to bad things that are otherwise unrelated to his life. And so wanting to put that on something being shown to him by a third party rather than stuff he's just experiencing internally could make sense too. So that might be motivation to say Tony is this, you know, person. Tony is this person who shows me upsetting things sometimes. And in that sense, maybe Tony kind of sucks rather than I just literally am stuck forever experiencing these things because it's part of my own brain and how I work. Um, so that could be sort of a motivation to externalize it in a more explicit way rather than just to try and develop an understanding of it at all is an idea. <laughs> uh, I wanted to say, uh, unless you have more thoughts on the specific nature of the nope. Tony and the shining, um, the red rum mirror thing obviously seems like a good thing, but maybe Tony wrote red rum or Tony slash Danny wrote red rum, not because they were trying to be Cypress or because he didn't know how to spell, but because it was building on a prophetic vision of the word being seen later on. Maybe he had a flash forward of Shelley Duvall's character seeing the word red rum in a mirror and so seeing it as murder. He parsed it as murder and saw it that way and then wrote it. But because there was an I, – I, I had a thought here and I feel like it's falling apart even since I put it together. But basically the idea that there's a self-fulfilling prophecy nature of, of some of the prophetic visions he could be having. Because of all the fucking mirrors around. Yeah, so he could be transcribing like of his Yeah, like any, any particular you know sort of psychic vision he could be having, he could be looking at least partially in a mirror at any point just because of the sheer amount of mirrors in yeah. the Overlook. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's a there's a thing with with Nicholson has this sort of manic shitting grin a lot you know it's part of yeah. what makes the Jack character work the way it works in the film and I just wanted to sort of note this as sort of like a parallel over to another Kubrick film again of Eyes Wide Shut and Tom Cruise who has this sort of at times manic seeming smile in the film that's just sort of like a little bit desperate and discordant to whatever's going on in a way that casting Tom Cruise was really clever for that role because I feel like he brings a specific sort of Manic, uh, manic, uh, manic happiness con- or smiliness. Yeah, yeah. Explicitly not particularly happy, but sort of smiling as a reaction to a situation. And it, it just sort of struck me a couple times watching The Shining again the other night uh, how much it feels like the same sort of thing. Like Kubrick definitely saw a specific thing in Nicholson mm-hmm. and and I think in Tom Cruise in some of that presentation of that Something Man, something about an insincere smile, an older, like a current Tom Cruise in The Shining, as like the Nicholson type character. Like I think Tom Cruise would be really good at that now, yeah. especially now with everything we know about him. <laughs> um, it would be very effective to be like as a man who has gone like completely off the rails. Yeah, no, it'd be interesting to see him or at least in a similar role. Like I could see him like just in another film that happened to have a similar sort of character treatment. It would be really neat to need to see. Yeah, I really want to see him as just like a a a predator kind of character, you know, not that you know is in no way sympathetic. He is very infrequently and unsympathetic in movies and like 
unsympathetic, like in like almost like a you know you you don't has he ever like played like a straight up anti-hero at any point? I don't think uh, so, right? Yeah, I can't think of because he always praises like brash young men who won't play by the rules, but then yeah. you know they I mean, still he's played bad guys too, but never like a, yeah like what was that the the film with uh, Jamie Fox where Cruz is like a hitman who basically oh um yeah not payback ransom. Maybe it had it was like a one word name. Wasn't no, it? no, th- those were both uh, Mel Gibson movies. One of which is oh. very much uh, Mel Gibson antihero film. Payback was um, Ransom was Mel Gibson's son gets kidnapped and it's like a vigilante sort of thing. No, it was. Uh, is that, is that, was that his Liam Neeson movie? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Tooken. Uh, there are at least two parodies of, roughly speaking, Taken. Uh, one of which has a lot more. Uh, budget behind it than the other, which looked like a terrible direct video that I tripped across recently. But yeah, one of them is definitely called Tooken. Uh, <laughs> so well, so uh, Key and Peel have done some damage there uh, on the general uh, psychic uh, consciousness of the movie-going uh, public, I guess. Collateral, I think, was the... Colla- collateral. Co- collateral. Okay, that yeah, sounds that, like a movie. And so you've got Tom Cruise as like a bad guy there... But uh, but he's not like an interestingly manic one. Like it's not it's not what we're talking about here. It's not the Jack Torrance Jack Nicholson thing. It's much more him playing. You know, he's he's a bad guy who gets upset at times in the film. But he's much more of like like the cool calculating villain in that, uh, which is not as interesting as I think what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, no, it would it would be interesting. I, I would I would be interested to see him in a in a role like that. Um, what else have I got in my notes? Uh, a number of things. Oh, there's <laughs> this is great. I don't know if I've ever noticed this before, but there's a great scene where Jack is at the big the the big party uh, for the first time. He goes oh, yeah, into yeah. the ballroom, and there's that whole party going on. And then Grady bumps into him with a, a tray full of drinks. Uh, I I can't even. I didn't catch the name of the drink, but it was something with sambuca in it. And and Grady spills that on him, and he's like, "Oh, you know, well, we should go to the bathroom and you know get you cleaned off. This tends to stick." And 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 Jack sort of like pats him on the back and is like, "Ah, that's oh, okay." Yeah. So wait, and he's got so he smears drink on the guy back of the guy's tux, and it's just it's like it's a tiny little detail that doesn't you know it's not important, but it's it's like the most human slimy, just random petty shitty yeah. thing. Uh, <laughs> that's just like the throwaway little moment, but. Uh, but it's not totally throwaway because they keep it. They keep the consistency. You can see that mark on Grady's jacket later, uh, shortly thereafter, in the bathroom scene. And God, I love I love the look. I mean, yeah. I, I love the look of the whole movie. It's beautifully shot. Uh, I, I like the way Kubrick frames things. I love his use of symmetry. I love the the camera work in general. But every once in a while, he just like designs the shit out of a set. Like in a this is an overtly designed set, and the bathroom in the hotel with, with the red and the white. It's just such a wonderful looking space. It's just, it's so fucking striking. You know, it's, it, and it looks like something taken from like, you know, the color palette of 2001 with all those stark whites and, and, and hard edges to stuff. Uh, but it's just this really great bathroom in this hotel. And just, really, really red. I, I, I have occasionally been in like very drastic bathrooms. There's, uh, there used to be, um, a, a restaurant that I that I that I worked near that that had uh, like dumplings and and just like sort of East Asian fusion food, and the bathroom in there had like this harsh, almost like ultraviolet blue light, and 
you know, that didn't make it easy for any for to do anything. And I don't think a red bathroom would either. I don't think you would be like be like, oh yeah, this is this is just just what I need to get that going. Well, yeah, it's a kind of bathroom um, you just like want to show off rather than like go take a shit in. Yeah, you know. So it's yeah, maybe 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 there's also a, a function um, there, but there's a there's an Italian uh, restaurant, and this is possibly going to be the most obscene anecdote I've told on this, uh, <laughs> on this podcast. So if you're at work, fast forward. Um, but there's, uh, I, I forget what it's called. It's just a, it's, it's a little Italy. It's just a little, uh, pastry place with like, you know, good cakes and stuff, but it, they have a small bathroom, uh, with, and they, the door and like all four walls, it's like very, very small. It's like, uh, there, there's no, you stand up and that's it. Yeah, there's a stand up and a sink and that's it. And the, there's, uh, mirrors on all four walls and the door and the mirrors go just below genital level. So if you have, you know, if you have external junk and you and you go to pee standing up, you see your junk reflected millions of times in front of you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so you go there a lot? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to get it in our apartment, but mm. You'd be surprised how much mirrors cost. <laughs> uh, there's a thing uh, in the film. There's a couple of different like uh, radio and news report type things. And there is a thing in a lot of Stephen King books where there'll be a, like a news clipping or something. Uh like a false document? Or yeah. Like- well, well, yeah. Like, 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 like as part of the book, it'll have this like little epistolatory – uh, blip of like a news clipping about something that had happened or is happening or something, um, you know, just littered in, 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 in a novel somewhere. And I don't remember anything about whether or not this shows up in the shining or not, but it's certainly something Stephen King has done in a number of books as have, you know, any number of other authors. Sure. Um, I think Stephen King was one of the first like sort of pop authors I read as a kid where I sort of saw some of this use of things other than literally just the narrative in the font you know, he would throw in a little bit of a a drawing on some page, like some symbol that was meaningful to the narrative, or there'd be a news clipping or something like that. And when I was, you know, twelve, I was super excited about this. Like, oh, hey, you can do this. You can experiment with the actual use of text and imagery on the page in a novel. Um, which obviously Stephen King did not come up with this stuff, but you know, it was it was my first exposure, so it was kind of a meaningful thing. Anyway, what, where I'm actually going with this is like among that stuff is news clippings. Like, here's a few column inches about something. And maybe I'm remembering unkindly, but I remember Stephen King not doing a very good job of writing these things convincingly, (laughs) you know, and uh, again, also not just a Stephen King thing. And, you know, I've occasionally tried to write a little bit of something that had maybe something like that. And, And the thing is, it's difficult. It's a different style of writing. Writing news copy is very different from writing a horror novel. And so I would not naturally expect someone who is pretty good at writing in one mode to necessarily be good in writing in another. It's, you know, they're different disciplines. But as a result, it, it always would sort of annoy me. Like I was like, why couldn't you find someone who knows how to write news copy to write your news copy instead of writing this hokey ass I'm pretending to be a news writer thing that just like sucks me out of the story? Like it's, it's sort of jarring. And so the thing is that I feel like the news in this film worked really well. In a way, I've seen I've seen this done badly in film too. I've seen shitty news reports that are just like, you know, I mean, there's Paul Verhoeven, RoboCop, intentionally being goofy and off note. But then there's a lot of just not doing a very good job 
accidentally that can show up, especially in like smaller budget stuff. And I liked I liked the news stuff in the film here. You know, it it, it there felt was, uh, okay. So remember, there was uh, the the Florida news uh, thing uh, with Scatman Crothers when, yeah. he, when he's back in Florida, and he's hearing sort of like a, a news report about crazy weather in Colorado, not like here in Florida. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, what else was there? I think there was also some Denver news reporting that we saw or heard at some point. Um, oh yeah, when she's emptying that disgusting can of uh, mixed fruit. Yeah, it was like a mixed fruit Something. cocktail that seemed to be entirely peaches. Um, this guy, that sounds so good. I I, I love a canned peach. I, I what, do you do you actually like canned fruit? I, I do. I can't stand I do. the sight of it. I sort of grew up on canned fruit. I mean, we had actual fruit too, but canned fruit was just a normal thing, and it was almost like you know that tended to be like packed in syrup, so it was even sort of desserty. Like you know, peaches in a can. Uh, it's it's a very different thing from fresh peaches, and I have a much more. Uh, Real appreciation of fresh peaches, I think, as an adult and someone who occasionally yeah. ever cooks stuff or buys fancy desserts. But uh, but peaches in a can, I loved that as a kid. I was like, oh yeah, I fucking all over it. I've never really gotten away from that. Like I cherry pie filling, I am on board with. I know it's not a meal, but I don't care. It's yeah, cherry pie like filling. A lot of stuff that I think people in America grew up and like I also grew up in America, but because you know, like my yeah. mom was from the Soviet Union we never you know like we never had frozen vegetables we never had like stovetop stuffing we never had canned fruit um yeah like pie fillings like in a can we never had that like cranberry sauce none of that stuff was ever around when I was growing up um yeah so I guess that might be why I find like it's so weird looking yeah um it's kind of weird when you step back and look at it but yeah it's so normal for me I'm like oh no yeah it just sounds delicious give me some fruit cocktail uh, but anyway, the news reports, the news reporting. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, sure, yeah. So anyway, they, they, they both they both felt natural to me. They both felt like, you know, this is a reasonably well-executed hokey news report in a way that I think contrasts with King's. Like, I guess I just, I'm, I'm taking this long rambling route to speculatively complain about Stephen King's writing for a little bit, which is totally dickish of me. But... But it is a thing. Like I really have noticed like there is this divide between media that incorporates fictional news reporting in a believable way and media that just doesn't. And it's interesting to me that the things that get it wrong get it as wrong as they do. Because it's not like I know anything except as a lay you know, viewer or reader about – like I, I don't have any journalism chops, any news production chops, nothing there. But I can just tell when it feels like a fucking stinker. And it's, so it surprises me when an author or a director can't tell that or yeah, can't tell think, it but doesn't do something about it. Yeah, I think false documents like and like epistolary stuff and like a non-otherwise epistolary novel. Because I mean like if you fuck up an epistolary novel, like it's – I don't think not a lot of people are going to read it. So it's not going to be like a jarring part of it because nobody read the thing. And yeah. if they did read the thing, they were able to somehow like put that aside long enough to finish reading it. But um, yeah, like it's I, I it's 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 harder to do than just like writing a book. I, I would imagine. And like, have you read Dracula? Dracula is completely epistolary, but I I feel like that doesn't get mentioned a lot because it's not like a fantastic success of the format where you have characters with like distinctly different voices yeah. and like distinctly different kinds of things saying stuff. And no, it's like it mostly reads just like. This is Bram Stoker now writing another character. Yeah, in this book. I, I remember that there was epistolary content, especially like with the opening stuff, like Harker, the entire novel. But I had forgotten uh, that the whole novel yeah. was. Yeah, 
Yep. I mean, it's sort of Frankenstein is is similar. Like 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 much of Frankenstein is instead like notionally a narrative being recounted uh, out loud. But the opening or like the first like forty fucking pages or something is all letters from a ship captain to his sister about the planning and execution and difficulties of some you know ice cutting voyage he was trying to go on in yeah. the Arctic. Uh, and eventually Dr. Frankenstein recovers enough from his terrible health scare when they found him up there that he starts telling, I think, the story. And then it's like a 200 pages of him recounting what has happened. And then we go back to letters from the ship captain recounting what happened after that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, those old horror novels. So in that sense, maybe it's understandable that you would have this desire to you know, do this mixed media bringing in of artifacts. But uh, yeah. Um, on the shinning, uh, the like the the, the Simpsons uh, thing when uh, after Marge like you know Homer gets knocked out and Marge like drags him into the freezer, uh, you know it's it's like that same scene when like Jack is in there and and uh, is it Grady knocks on the thing, but this time like you see Homer just like stuffing his mouth full of like you know different boxes of everything in the storage thing, and you know Mo who's playing Lloyd is just like Homer. Me and the other ghouls have thought you know you're not doing a good enough job. He's like can't talk eating, and then like you know they break in there and it's Mo dressed as Lloyd and you know like the mummy Frankenstein and Jason all drag him out. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I, I always love that part. But now, like, when I rewatch this, when, like, the scene when uh, Grady knocks on the door, uh, Jack has cracked into, like, a number of things in there. He's got, like, this giant thing of peanut butter sitting open, like a Costco-sized jar of peanut butter sitting open, a whole bunch of crackers and a box of Oreo cookies. I don't, didn't know And, that. <laughs> yeah, they're just, like, all this stuff is, like, open next to him as he's, like, laying in his bed of salt bags. And so, yeah, I, I never realized that, like, he actually, in the movie, got into the food. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, that passed me by uh, every time, I guess. How did he know Lloyd's name? How did he? If it's this, it's psychic stuff. What do you do? You know, yeah. I mean, like, 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 like there's, there's a. <laughs> It's it's absurd to me that I'm just like eh, who cares? Because like I love digging in on and arguing about this shit, but at the same time, I feel like that's the only sane way to get through some of the details of this film is to say, okay, well, it's you know, it's it's haunted. It's some shining, is what it is. Um, there's oh somebody uh, that that same guy that has that like the incredibly uh, involved uh, sh- uh, shining website. Um, the scene when, you know, like, Danny is seeing the twins, and then he's having, like, the really brief, like, red-tinged flashes of the twins, uh, dead and, like, chopped up. Yeah. Um, so the guy went through it frame by frame. They're not still. Uh, one of the girls takes, like, a full breath, uh, like, you know, in, in, like, the split second that it's on screen. And, like, I don't think you're supposed to, like, consciously notice that, but you are supposed to notice it. Hmm. Um, which I think is like another one of those like, and I don't know like if that actually works that way because I I never noticed it, and you know I I wouldn't be able to tell how you know unsettled I would be by that happening versus not happening, and you know like yeah. figure out exactly what kind of an effect that has. But I think that's like a really cool thing. The other thing, the well, that's, when- and that's another one of those ones where I'm willing to say you know Kubrick Kubrick was a thoughtful enough editor that he could also make a decision about how something could just work because no one's going to notice. Like, right. like, so I can, I could see him taking that scene and not saying it's very important to me that I get a full breath in here and make it explicit they're moving. And instead, him saying, you know, this is such a fast cut. She's breathing a little bit, but it, it's otherwise it's the framing I want, and no one's going to see it, so I'm just going to use this. But that's the thing; he could have recorded, 
you know, it's on the screen for like half a second, and he could have recorded like, you know, a minute of them laying there and used any couple of seconds of that minute, but he specifically used the one where she's breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, that's, I that's a shot that would take a long time to set up to. Yeah. Um, the other th- there was uh, there's something funny I really noticed. Oh, in the beginning when they're walking through the hotel and like you notice like the uh, um, Shelley Duvall notices like the the Native American like embellishments and she's like oh you know the 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 Indian I think she says Indian art like is is it authentic and the the guy showing the around is like yes it's all based on like you know Navajo design I'm like no the answer in that case is no it's not authentic you <laughs> you had somebody base it on authentic designs it's well it's, versus someone saying hey I just came make, up completely with what making I think it. Up. It's like, you know, it's yeah. It's not authentic um, Native American stained glass for sure, but it's, you know, versus <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's uh check out my tribal tattoo. Yeah, I base it on what I think maybe Indians would do. You know, it's like it's more authentic than that. I think is the idea. Based on actual existing designs was how I read the intention there. But I I, I take your extremely pedantic point. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to start calling you which, a piece. Which of my extremely pedantic <laughs> points? They're all pedantic. Um, so what do you think of the, 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 the Native American symbology take of this movie where there's like part of the movie functions as a metaphor for the, you know, the, the genocide that, you know, the, the, West, the, the genocide like committed during uh, westward expansion of the United States into places like Colorado? I, I, I think I think as an aspect of the dressing of the story, it's totally plausible. I mean, he does not exactly shy away with from it with the super obvious winking reference to built on an Indian burial ground. Uh, Wait, was it a winking reference? Because I think he just said that. Well, that's he? what well, I, I'm oh. saying. I, I think anybody involved in the production. Oh, I see. Uh, I, I feel like I feel like Ullman was sort of being a little bit sort of like ah, oh, they they say blah da 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 da. Um, like, I don't think Ullman was trying to say, also, this is a desecrated Indian burial ground. He was, you know, very much like bringing it up as sort of like trivia in a, a, a lighthearted manner, um, in a way that suggests to me he didn't really give a shit about the possibility of the fact that it was desecrating, you know, Native American burial ground. Um, I don't know. Am I answering the question clearly? Well, I, no, I think he knew it was being desecrated because then he was just like there was a number of attacks on yeah. you know like the the builders. It was just like <laughs> I, I you know maybe he did not like think so far as I wonder if the two things were related. Because um, I mean, like I, I I would actually give him like the benefit of the doubt for actually not thinking it through that far. Be like, oh well, I mean they 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 attacked cuz we were here well it's okay like, i, I guess what i say dig, winking, literally digging up a graveyard and desecrating corpses when i say winking i mean like you know sort of lighthearted not winking as in cuz they got what they deserved those darn engines like oh okay sorry. yeah it wasn't like you know <laughs> right um no just more like it was just, just supposed to be like shit. fun like, trivia yeah, exactly like like he he does not have any sort of like there's no sense of yeah we try not to talk about this because it's a terrible episode in the history of the development of the hotel it's more like did you know um but in any case the film like definitely points that out you know so i think between that and the uh, sort of Native American uh, imagery and artifacts and whatnot in the film. I think the idea of like you know there is badness that has happened here is supposed to be tied into that. I don't know if it's really supposed to be about any of that beyond that. Like I feel like that's one of the that's one of the like Room Two Thirty Seven conspiracy theory things is like oh this is secretly a film that is fundamentally about this rather than 
Yeah, well, the fundamentally no, some, about that, yeah. I've never been able to get on board with. But but, but the idea that it's like yeah. it's intentionally a thought there, sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. the film comes right back to that. You know, it, it doesn't really talk about Native American stuff anywhere else in the film, uh, but it definitely reaffirms the idea of that sort of like racist and colonialist uh, and oppressive nature of you know sort of white invaders. Uh, when when Grady's talking about wanting to, you know, Danny trying to bring uh, Halloran. To the hotel, and he, uh, you know, they, they use the N word three times in a row, and from from Grady, it's it's full of loathing. Like this, this is outright, very straight up racism. Like how dare a black yeah. person, you know, rise above their station, sort of thing. So like that's definitely in the same place, and that's not something that's belabored at all. Uh, beyond that, like that's really that one moment of like just like you know jarring virulent racism from this you know dead ghost. <laughs> but uh, and um, I, I just realized that. He was, I mean, O'Halloran, I mean, not O'Halloran, Grady was supposed to, like, the Grady that that um, that Jack encounter was supposed to be a waiter, right? Was yeah, yeah. Was supposed to be seemed- a, 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 just, just like a, when they, I mean, like, not necessarily like a head waiter, and he was just supposed to be like a, sir, like a service employee of the place, right? Yeah, it seems like he was, you know, serving so, drinks and such. in the present moment, O'Halloran would have, like, outranked him in the kitchen hierarchy. Oh, probably, yeah. Because, yeah, O'Halloran was head chef of, like, the Overlook Hotel, right? Halloran. Halloran. Is it just oh, Halloran, not oh, O'Halloran? Yeah, O'Halloran was the Irish guy. Uh, um, yeah, I think probably so. And that's that, that's a weird thing because if, if Jack has always been the caretaker, then has Grady always been a guy spilling drinks on customers? And Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, how you're supposed to interpret you've always been the caretaker is one of those things that I don't think, like, I will ever personally get a satisfying answer on. Yeah. Well, it could suggest something about like the imminentization of of the moment, and maybe what is always is until it changes, and then whatever is then also always is. Like it could be that the nature of the hotel and the nature of the people uh, dwelling there as spirits is such that they don't have a sense of time passing or of things changing uh, beyond a very very short term sensibility of what's going on today, maybe. And so the fact that Jack is there and the fact that Jack is becoming inhabited by this caretaker role from the Hotel Shining means that everybody who is a ghost there knows, of course, Jack is the caretaker and that's that's how it is. And Grady is the guy who is you know serving drinks and that's how it is. Um, and so maybe that ties in with the idea of the photo from 1921 that's got Jack in is it's because Jack's in that photo because that's how it is. That's how it always has been. And, you know, as soon as it becomes that way, that's, that is how it is. That's how it always was. Um, so maybe, maybe they're just like, they are literally incapable of processing the idea that it's, you know, 60 years later at this point, you know, it's just, it's always the 4th of July. It's always 1921. You know, whoever's a caretaker is always the caretaker. They've become unmoored from temporality as we understand it as mortal beings. And it's weird that Jack goes back in time, but uh, Shelley Duvall technically goes forward in time because she sees everybody as like skeletons and, you know, like everything incredibly aged. But Jack is sort of like going backwards where first he sees Lloyd and then there's an entire party and then he's like in the photo. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Shelley goes forward time exactly or just sees a picture of time having passed without that room ever being touched. Like if people died and that that room just sat for 60 years and you'd get the cobwebs and the skeletons and whatnot. But, uh, so I don't know if she's moving forward or just like experiencing an alternate view of the current time. 
based on no one cleaning up that room. The janitorial right. staff just – And everybody like, just nah. explicably dying in their wolf Yeah. Like I think it has to be just sort of like a weird figure to flash of, of sort of the nature of the place rather than yeah. literally something that would have been findable in the hotel because I don't know right. how people would have suddenly all died there. Unless it was like maybe it was a Mask of the Red Death thing like Edgar Allan Poe, like everybody's having a party in desperate denial of uh, the impending threat. It's been so long since I read that story. I read it when I was like 14 that I don't remember any of the details. I but- read it in the same class that I wrote that the, the all work thing for. I just realized. Nice, nice. It's all, oh my God, it's all coming together. Uh, <laughs> between the, yeah, between this and like the Shining reference and the Goosebumps thing, it's like, no, too many things are, are coinciding. Uh, you know, like in a radius of this movie. Um, also, that's what it does to you. I think. I think Angela looked up. Uh, my wife. My wife looked up where the road from the opening shot is, and that was actually Glacier National Park. I think in Montana is is where the opening sequence was shot. So that wasn't actually in Colorado either. Uh, as was not the the hotel. This is this is a big point of pride for me as an Oregonian. But the the hotel, the overlook, the exterior, and the interior are two totally different spaces but the exterior of that hotel which does not actually have a, a hedge maze normally uh is the timberline lodge in in uh oregon here uh about a mile from my house it's just a nice they, big lodge. they changed it to um room 327 from room 317 in the book to the room 327 of the movie because like the owners of like the the that place the outside place uh, didn't want to spook people off from ever using their room 317, so they used room 327, which they don't have one of, and room 317 became the single most requested room in yeah. their hotel. They, they, do a, they do a yearly uh, a screening of, of The Shining uh, up there every Halloween, too, I believe. Are you serious? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's a, a nice little... Nice little detail. I've been to, I I I want to go to like I really want to go to like themed uh, showings like that. I went to I saw the uh, the Warriors in Coney Island, like at the uh, the they have a small like screen theater. Uh, so I saw that there. There's a showing I think in Austin of Jaws where everybody gets into like inflatable like the uh, the tubes the inflatable tubes <laughs> and hangs out in a lake as they project it onto a screen that's in front of the lake. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I'd like yeah, to, I'd I, like to I like, I'd like to go to Tommy Wise's apartment and watch the room. That'd be fun. <laughs> just watch him act it out. Yeah, he plays all the roles. Um, just the, the the room, the one man show. Oh man, T- Tommy Wiseau, if you're listening to this, do that. Yes, please. Yeah. I'll make a documentary about it and call it "Oh Hi Tommy." And uh, <laughs> yeah. One other note I had, this is something that sort of struck me right near the end of the film. When when Jack starts chasing Danny into the maze, you know, with an axe, and there's no question that he has, you know, lost his mind and is trying to track down and kill his kid. But at the same time, when he's first starting to shout, uh, Danny, I'm coming, I'm coming, Dan, uh, line, and this gets more manic and threatening later on, but that first delivery actually has a kind of genuinely sort of paternal concern to it. Yeah. And it's a and really I mean, the, interesting the, the little... scene when he picks up Danny is also like genuinely kind of tender. Yeah. Well, and that, and that one actually is still plausibly tender. Like that's pre total fucking meltdown. Um, right. Even though it still manages to be quite creepy and sort of increasingly creepy as the conversation continues. But, but yeah, there was something about the, something about the fact that there was a lack of apparent, like insane malice in that first delivery, like almost some part, either either as a ruse or as some part of him 
despite everything else, still having this sort of paternal concern or just like that was the line delivery they ended up using for that shot. Uh, but it, it was it was a weird little thing. It was, a, it was sort of striking to see that a little bit and imagining the possibility that it could have some tiny element of what King preferred for the idea of this element of humanity and, and an internal struggle as the nature of the Jack Torrance character uh, in the novel. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, possibly just a totally throwaway little thing, but it jumped out at me somehow. Uh, that's my notes. I I, I feel like I, I could. Been, we've, we I think we just broke two hours. So yeah. yeah, I think. While we while we wrap it up, but anyway, yeah. this movie, I this this movie is great. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's a remarkable. Please film. see it. If you just spent two hours listening to us talk about this movie without having seen it, you you have made a mistake. And if this is if this is it's one of those things where like this is a film that is like such a known cultural object that I feel like it's one of those movies where it's easy to maybe sort of feel like, well, I've never seen it, but you know, I've read about it. Blah blah blah. blah. Uh, it's not a movie where you're gonna get the feeling of the movie from having sort of heard and read about it. You just need to see it. This isn't the Godfather people. Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) if, if it were not totally off mission, I would do the Godfather with you sometime, but, uh, I I don't think we can possibly paint that as remotely a horror film. Uh, (laughs) but yeah, no, it's, 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 it really, it is a remarkable film. It's, it's an interesting film as just a horror film for being sort of unusual. It has some of, I would say a, a couple of the films that we've liked most, that are contemporary mm-hmm. films like uh, House of the Devil, It Follows. Both have had a lot of really interesting tonal differences from a lot of other otherwise likable horror movies that have sort of set them apart. And I feel like those have in common with Kubrick. And I probably mentioned Kubrick uh, at least in discussing It Follows. Some, um, you know, there's a commonality of this, of this use of just straight up tension and unease and really carefully planned, slow, deliberate shot making that makes them work. That That is part of what I like so much about this film and why I think taking Kubrick's aesthetic that is not a horror movie guy and applying it to uh, a horror film, at least nominally, uh, why it works and why it's so interesting. So yeah, it's I, 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 really, I really like this movie, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's a good movie. Very good movie. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's... Uh, I, I guess uh, we'll we'll be back in November. We haven't figured um, out what we're going to watch yeah, yet, yeah. but uh, I think we had a couple ideas kicking around, so we'll, we'll uh, discuss that further and Matt, probably let you know. Yeah, well, maybe. we managed to do it this time, so there's 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 hope. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I think that's just about it. So we'll 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 talk to y'all uh, soon. Uh, Yakov is always a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, remember to rate us up on iTunes and check out the Tumblr and the Facebook group. Do the things. Say the stuff. Turn those turn that social media into verbs. Good night everybody. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>